Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, my dear brothers, sisters, friends, and the foes out there. And welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers podcast with your host, Didi Hussein. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to remind all the avid podcast listeners that you can find this episode on all three seasons on all the major audio platforms. And if you tune in via YouTube, wherever this episode makes it to YouTube, do remember to click subscribe. Brothers and sisters and friends, today's guest is a very interesting one. Having him on this show and on this platform will most certainly cause a stir amongst various factions and constituencies of the Muslim and the non-Muslim community. He is a controversial figure. He also once was a national icon of a particular spectrum of political leaning. He was the former leader of the British Nationalist Party. He is now with the Freedom and Alliance Party and he was a former MEP. How do we forget? He was a former member of the European Parliament for the North West and a infamous figure to some extent and an icon that represents the far right of English politics or does he still? We'll find out and that's none other than Nick Griffin. Nick, Hello. welcome to the show. Thank you. How are things? Things are good, thank you very much. Looking, for, looking forward to the show. What do you think about how this engagement came about? Did you have any reservations? I didn't have any reservations. Uh, if you told me a few years ago, you know, I thought, no, that's very unlikely. Uh, although I think people should understand that everything they think they know about me has come about through the, the lens that people like the BBC put on in the first place. So even the things you think you know actually weren't necessarily true. Uh, and uh, on Twitter in the last few months, I've got now an amazing engagement with Muslims. And I keep on getting people who say, well, you know, when I was young, you, know, you were the bogeyman. You know, I was terrified of you. Uh, and I think I say, I understand why. Uh, it's a shame, and I hope that perhaps at the end of this, I'm sure we're not going to agree on everything, but uh, at least perhaps we, people understand that I'm a dimensional character, the same as you, not a single dimension portrayed by the media. I hope that in this conversation, this engagement, that there's a sense of at least acknowledgement why a certain perception of you exists. Mm -hmm. When I told my father that I'm doing this podcast, he told me, you're speaking to Nick Griffin, who people of my generation believe he was a significant contributor towards the mindset of Paki bashing, mm -hmm. uh, of beating up Asian lads, troubling taxi drivers, restaurant workers, um, someone who made life difficult uh, for British Asians and Muslims. That yep. was his, that, that was my father's I, initial. Uh, and so I, I hope that in this conversation, you can at least acknowledge that certain things were said and done in the past that gives you that reputation that you yep. do have. I, I can understand that perception entirely. Uh, I'd say that if people thought that I was there causing trouble, uh, there's been, there was a number of times in different towns, Bradford is one example, where I've turned up to meetings where there was so much anger uh, and rage, particularly about the grooming issue, but also racist attacks on white lads, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, the local community was at boiling point. And I'm there saying, yes, there's a problem. A problem needs addressing. But it's not the whole community, and you won't address it with violence. There has to be a political road, and the people most to blame are our politicians, our police, our media. So get involved in politics and put it right. I would say I've constantly, over a long career, I've taken young white men who are on the verge of that, and I've given them a political road to go down rather than violence. We'll speak about that political yeah. road, but let me just kick off today's podcast by you know, just, getting, just getting a kind of a flow Mm -hmm. uh, of, of inside the thoughts of Nick Griffin. I'm going to ask you or mention the names of ten and a half figures. You're going to you're going to you're going to you're going to find out why I consider one of them a half a human being. 
Um, some have passed away, mm-hmm. some are still living. And I want you to just tell the viewers your initial thoughts when I mention their names. Mm-hmm. Okay. St. George. And the dragon. Uh, St. George, the patron saint of England introduced by the Normans. Uh, our patron saint really is St. Edmund, who predates him. Uh, obviously, uh, the the left and the PC say, oh, how stupid these English are. You know, they've got a, a patron saint who's Turkish. <laughs> Palestinian. <laughs> Palestinian. Um, Palestinian Christian. Uh, so, not Turkish. But not white not like you either. Not white. No, no. More, more, more bit olivey, perhaps more closer to my complexion. Probably. I'll tell you, when many years ago I was in Libya, after four days in Libya, I was far more olive and darker than most of my hosts. Okay. Uh, so, no, St. George... Uh, is an intensely powerful figure to English people who've lost all other sense of religion and roots. So don't go around dissing St. George, nobody should do. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a paradox, isn't it, that our beloved patron saint was actually a Palestinian Christian. Pope Urban II. Um, Pope Urban II was an example of Christian expansionism and imperialism. Uh, obviously, I'm a Christian, uh, and on one side, I think, well, yes, we should expand and give you people the chance to have the true faith and be saved and so on. But on the other hand, I recognise that that expansionist Christianity can actually make for bad neighbours. Uh, so there's, without Christianity, look at the West now. It's uh, a shambles of disbelief, abortion, drugs, all sorts of horrors. So you need Christianity, Western society. There's a point at which if it is so intensely believed or it becomes intertwined with material ambitions of men or organisations, it makes itself a bad neighbour. And I think the same could be true. Uh, Islam also is an expansionist religion for all the right reasons in your people's minds. But it can also, under certain circumstances, be misused by men who take it for their own advantage. And it can also be a bad neighbour. I think Pope Urban II, I believe that there was justification for the Crusades, uh, but uh, that, and, and Pope Urban obviously largely kicked that off, mm-hmm. but I certainly don't believe that he was a saint. Okay. Richard the Lionheart. Uh, he's another one of these Normans who everybody thinks is English. <laughs> Didn't even speak English, no. as a matter of fact. Uh, so, yeah, again, he's uh, a, a romantic figure who's part of uh, our past and our identity. Uh, and I think that part of the romance, certainly the Victorians got it, and people, when I was a lad still, Richard the Lionheart was a, a sort of figure that you learned about in primary school and so on. And part of the, the story was that this man was so confident and so chivalrous that he'd sit down with the other side, with Saladin. Saladin sent him a, a horse respecting his bravery on, on the battlefield. And a doctor when he was unwell. And a doctor when he was unwell, yes. Uh, so Richard the Lionheart, to me, is... A, despite the fact he's a Norman, uh, he's a, uh, a Christian figure who fought for his beliefs and against Islam, but not in a, a psychotic and a disrespectful way. Uh, and I think, therefore, that although he's a long time in the past, he's certainly a figure who won't be forgotten in the future. Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler is one of the causes of all our misfortunes now. He came about because primarily the French at the end of the First World War imposed a monstrous peace treaty in Germany. So the, the peace was only a, uh, a temporary armistice. So it made Hitler... This is Versailles we're talking yes, about. Yes, the, the Treaty of Versailles. It made Hitler inevitable. 
Hitler came to power on the basis of a series of promises which if fulfilled in a manifesto, if fulfilled, would have made Germany a powerhouse but also a peaceful place. One of them, for instance, was the abolition of the standing army, the creation of a citizen's militia. So strong that Germany couldn't be, a little bit like Switzerland, so strong that, that Germany couldn't be invaded, but there wouldn't have been the machinery to conquer anybody else. And to my mind, Hitler went completely wrong in 1934. He had a choice. He's given a choice. The revolution is just completed. He had a choice between his side with the Junkers, with the industrialists, with the big landowners, or you side with the people who put you in power. Uh, and he sided with big money, which he needn't have done. He had enough power at that stage. He could have sided with the others. If he'd sided with the others, then the, the land which an expanding German population need to create this uh, ideal utopian society of the German sturdy peasant working his own land with his own family there and so on in his own plot, that land should have come at the expense of the big landowners in eastern Germany. Mm -hmm. It should not have come at the expense of the Slavs. Uh, but Hitler had that uh, xenophobic approach. So he completed by, he wasn't wholly responsible for the Second World War. Uh, the, uh, the usual banker, uh, culprits, uh, the French, the section of the British elite, all of them were involved in creating that war. But Hitler made it inevitable there'd be that war. And coming so close on the back of the the first, the first and the second world war, really a European brothers war, is the thing which is that many, left, that many we, Muslim colonial subjects and, fought, uh, fought, which many many fought in as well. But the in terms of the uh, a percentage of the population, European, it didn't begin to touch. Of right? not. Was it eighteen ninety thousand Indians mm. died yeah. fighting for Britain mm. in the second world war? No, it was entirely yeah. a European war. But it, but it was a European war, it it's a European civil European war, and it drastically weakened us, our people. And I say Hitler bears a significant part of the guilt for that, but not all the guilt. Have you ever throughout your life ever gravitated towards sympathising with him or his ideology? I ever, read, at yeah, any point. No, uh, yeah, I read Mein Kampf when I was 15 because my grandfather had a copy. Uh, and this was in the National Front and lots of Hitler the man. And I found the whole thing boring other than the chapter on pro or two chapters on propaganda were quite interesting. Mm -hmm. But no, I had very little sympathy. And by the age of 18, uh, the youngsters who were taking over the National Front at the time, uh, we discovered through English patriotic writers, we discovered Gregor and Strasser, who were the, the socialist side of the National Socialist Movement mm -hmm. and had no time for Hitler at all because he exiled one and murdered the other. Oswald Mosley. Oswald Mosley was a great British politician with one of the worst senses of timing of all British politicians. He should have been a prime minister. He's much demonised. Uh, and obviously he's now presented as the appalling anti-Semite and all the rest. Even on Peaky Blinders. Uh, even, even on, but particularly on Peaky Blinders. Yeah. Uh, and when he actually read what he was saying, he was a man of, an, of great vision. Uh, Mussolini said to him, look, don't put on the black shirt, don't go out on this fascist road, it's thoroughly un-British, the British won't take to it. And although Mussolini funded him to very, uh, very large sums of money for several years, uh, Mosley went and did this thing, he'd been advised by a foreigner, the Brits won't take to it. And of course the Brits really didn't take to it, do you, do which, you which, which was a shame. I think if Mosley had had a better sense of political timing and a better sense of reality, he quite likely could have become a prime minister. Uh, I'd have think that the whole world would be a better place because he wasn't just interested in Britain and so on. He was also looking at, you know, we're here with this end times colonialism. What do we do with it? 
and so on. And he wasn't there for losing the third world, as it wasn't even the third world. He wasn't there for losing the colonists. He got a huge issue with the banking system, with usury. And it wasn't a code word for Jews. Mm. He had a huge uh, problem with this. And if he'd come to power and had dealt with the usury system at the heart of the uh, city of London, uh, then I think British colonialism would have come to an end anyway. Do you not? It would have come to an end in a, a more orderly way. And I think straight away, basically, the third world was freed from colonialism and then got economic colonialism, which actually means you get all the worst, you don't get any of the benefits. Most people wouldn't have had that. Because Muslims still very much believe, and many from the global south still very much believe that there is still economic colonialism and imperialism. Oh, yeah. The resources that belong to the indigenous people of those lands, that oil which functions and funds the Western civilization, belongs primarily to the Muslims of that region. But you have massive British and American corporations like BP and so yeah. forth that come and suck the resources out. So what we're saying is that you're right, from a, from a military point of view, there's still military bases in the Muslim mm. world. You don't, you don't see any Muslim military bases in the Western world. But you see British and American military bases yep. in the Muslim world. So they still are colonial outposts. That's how they're seen. They're, they're right. Except. They're right. Well, can I just say there, though, that long before the city of London elite uh, started conquering and stealing from the rest of the world, they stole from the English. They stole literally one third of the land of England. You drive out somewhere, you could look at all those fields around every village. One third of everything you see was owned in common by the people until it was stolen by the elite who then used that wealth they got from, just from taking us. Mm. Uh, and they did the same in Wales, the same in Scotland, the same in Ireland as well. Then they used that and they stole from the rest of the world. But don't think that you're especially aggrieved cases they did that to us before they did it to you. It's an aggrieved case for us because it's generally quite civilizational, whether we want to accept it or not. It's a civilized. I know we're digressing a bit, but it's because when you speak about the Islamic perspective, you have to understand that we were a competing civilization. Mm -hmm. yep. We were very much present and leading humanity many, many, mm -hmm. in many aspects. In fact, when, when Christianity or Christian Europe was in the Dark Ages, you had Andalus, you had Muslim Spain and Abbasid Baghdad. Um, there's no denying that. It's in the mm -hmm. own history book. So when, we, when you talk about an aggrieved position, the Muslim position is a particularly aggrieved position because we see it as civilizational. But we can get to that later yeah. on. Um, Nigel Farage. He's the heavyweight politician of this era, in fact. He's a very good politician. I'm not saying he's a good man. He's very lucky. Uh, he did a deal with the BBC, basically. Nigel Farage, he was, from the early 80s, he was there with UKIP which was unheard of at any time other than European elections. And then this is an election in which very few people vote. Why was that? Well, there, there, there wasn't really a grassroots following to begin with. There was no, there's no ideological basis. You have to have an ideological basis, I think, for, uh, to, uh, to amass the party activists who create you know, an organic thing that goes forward. Farage didn't have that. So it was just a protest vote at European election times. And it would have stayed there without any real significance, were it not for the fact that Farage, uh, or rather the BBC particularly, came to Farage, uh, and so we had people who were closely, heavily involved in the upper circles of UKIP at the time, so absolutely genuine, this. They came to Farage, uh, and they were so scared of me and the British National Party, uh, and they tried stopping us, the left had tried stopping us with smears, with violence. Uh, they tried the question time, have Griffin on, uh, let him speak and expose himself. The consequences of that, there's a left-wing myth that... Do you think they were successful that, in that? Well, there's only one 
thing, and that's what did the public think. And before question time, we'd never been above 6% in the opinion polls. The week after question time, a proper serious opinion poll had us on 22%. Mm-hmm. So it was shattering to the BBC because this thing didn't work, what they thought was going to work. So after that, they, they never had me on again ever, unless absolutely forced to by electoral law. But they pres- they promoted Nigel Farage. They had him on. They had me once on Question Time uh, in a, a public lynching, uh, and they had him on twenty-two times. They put him on. Have I got news for you? You know. So the BBC. He's which, on our celebrity now. Yeah, now. Now he's on our celebrity. So the media, which is uh, intensely pro. EU, push this man up. And they did that. And the agreement they had with him was, we will promote you and UKIP. You'll talk about immigration as if it's your issue and so on. But don't actually talk about um, third world immigration. Don't talk about Muslim immigration. He didn't for a long, long time. Does now. But then he didn't. He was actually speaking only about uh, Eastern European immigration. Uh, And then they made the public think he's against all immigration. He was deliberately promoted in order to stop me and the BNP. So he's very lucky. Without me, this isn't big-headed, it's a simple fact, without the perceived threat of me, and actually we were never that kind of a threat. We'll get to that. Left left untouched, we'd have got five... A threat to to who? The establishment? A threat to the establishment. Okay. So left untouched, we'd have got five or six MEPs. That would have been it. And the whole MEP, the whole European parliamentary system is designed to suck people in and give them such a good time, they're neutralised. So it wouldn't have had any long-term effect. But by panicking so much about me and the BNP, they promoted Farage. He was very lucky. Uh, because of that, he got this cr- incredibly big vote in the 2014 European election. And that, in the end, um, Cameron thought, well, there's now such a threat to our vote. We've got to give this referendum, which I'm sure we'll win. And they misunderstood the fact that there's a big block of the British blue-collar blue-collar election, English in particular, mm-hmm. uh, who had given up on politics You're except pro-Brexit? on this one issue. You're pro- you, you supported Brexit? Absolutely, pro- pro-Brexit. So Farage, none of that would have happened if it wasn't for the fact that Farage had this deal with the BBC. But the fact that he was able to get it, the fact he's cynical enough to have it and turn it to his advantage, so he's a really heavyweight politician, and I suspect he's not finished yet, uh, which is bad news because as well as doing deals with the BBC, he's from the class that is innately sympathetic to Zionism mm-hmm. and big money around the world. Uh, and the way that our society is going, he's yet got the potential to be a menace to all of us. Stephen Yaxley-Lennon, a.k.a. Tom- Tommy Robinson. A.k.a. Tommy Robinson. Mm. Uh, Tommy, I think he's actually got, he's got a sort of Irish charm. Um, he's... If he'd grown up in an England 20, 30 years before when he did, instead of going to uh, a comprehensive where he came up with nothing, he'd have gone to a grammar school, he'd have come out with a, a good education and a career path, and we'd never have heard of him. And he probably is still living in a nice house in Bedfordshire or whatever. Uh, but he was picked uh, as someone who could front this wholly inorganic English Defence League, which from the very beginning... Was How was the relationship a, between BMP and EDL? Zion, a Zionist front. BMP and EDL, what was the general relationship between the two? Hostile from the very beginning. They were, and bear in mind, they emerged uh, in 2009, yeah. just a, really the, the big one, within a few weeks of us making the only really significant electoral breakthrough for in British nationalism in its, in its entire history. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden they're emerging, basically saying to people, come with us on the streets. Uh, and it did, it sucked away from us people who'd have come in as activists 
and 18 months or two years later would have been local organisers, local officials and so on. So we had a, 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 there was a twin track strategy used against us. On the one side, the posh, respectable side, there was UKIP taking the votes. Mm. And on the other side, there were these people sucking the lifeblood out of our new recruitment base uh, from, the, from the grassroots. But regardless of, their, of our attitude with them, the simple fact is that that whole operation was set in motion at uh, Allen Lakes Flat in the Barbican and so on by a group of people who were wholly owned employees of American-based neocon Zionist foundations. It's a very, very clever piece of politicking and it's very wicked and very, very dangerous. Uh, the last individual, and now it will make sense why I said a half, mm -hmm. um, uh, the weasel Douglas Murray. <laughs> Half a man, not, not a man at all. He's, uh, he's Britain's equivalent of Ben Shapiro in the States. Uh, and he's there because he's, part, he's out of the same stable as Tommy Robinson. Exactly. But Tommy's there to appeal to the masses. And the English, of course, uh, and the British in general, have this deeply ingrained class thing. So there's no prospect of middle class lads or uh, middle class people respecting or following Tommy Robinson because he's a Nike. So Douglas Murray is there to do the same thing. Let's kick off the podcast. I'm going to ask you squarely, uh, simply because it would be unjust from a regulatory point of view. We're regulated by an organization called Impress, um, who will no doubt will look into this interview and, mm -hmm. yeah. and, and question why certain things may or may not be asked. Do you hate Jews, Nick? No. No, there's people out there who do hate Jews and they're having a field day at present with what the, the Zionists are doing in Gaza. Mm -hmm. uh, there's people who do. Uh, and those people, everything's the fault of the Jews and there's no good Jews. That's I, not your position. I, no, I constantly, genuinely, again on Twitter and so on, I'm pointing out uh, that there are good Jews. Some of the most effective criticism of Zionism and Talmudism comes from men, it has done for years, Benjamin Friedman, uh, Israel Shamir, they're now both dead. But you look at people like uh, Gilad Atzmon now. There's these people, uh, Ron Unz, who does, I believe, the best English language written material on the internet is the Unz Review, UNZ. People should look at it. Uh, and he's Jewish. Uh, so, no, I'm not one who says that all Jews are you know, utterly evil. But I do believe that there's, obviously, we've got a problem with Zionism. And I believe that Zionism is the political expression of... A, a, a strand within that community which is deeply hostile particularly to Christians but also obviously in the context of uh, Palestine there they can't help themselves but be hostile to anybody else who's in the land between the Nile and the Euphrates because they believe that is given to them by God and that it's special because they're the only real human beings so, what, I, think, so I think that's a racism which is a menace but under do not for one minute believe that all Jews are like that because there's people on the left in particular with whom I disagree probably on most other things. There's left-wing Jews who are saying no Zionism is wicked and unjust and there has to be a proper fair settlement with the Palestinians. Uh, and then there's some religious Jews, you know, the ones uh, who, some of the most hardcore ones, who say that uh, for man to have created Zionism and is a, a Jewish state is a blasphemy. So we want it dismantled so that's not where I caught on these yes, guys. Yeah, yeah. people like that. Yeah. Uh, and they're not, yeah, they're not a vast section, but they're a genuine section. And then there's secular right-wing Jews like Ron Unz uh, and so on, who are saying all the right things in a more informed way than anyone in 
my society or yours. So mm. no, I've got no problem with those people at all. Far from it. I constantly say to people, look at them and don't go down the road of thinking that they're all at the spawn of Satan or whatever stuff like that. Now, look, I can totally understand why Zionists weaponize anti-Semitism mm -hmm. uh, to silence and censor any critique yep. uh, or opposition to uh, the occupying entity of Israel. From an Islamic perspective, and I want to just make this clear because there'll be people from your constituency tuning mm -hmm. into this podcast. Uh, the Islamic position is that Christians and Jews are people of the book. We share a tradition from the perspective that Muslims affirm the prophets of the past from the children of Israelites. We affirm the Torah, the Psalms, mm -hmm. the Bible, and of course the final um, untampered message to humanity being the Quran. Um, there are many, many, many passages in the Quran where Allah talks about Bani Israel, the children of Israelites, as the chosen people of that time. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something which Zionists purpose purposely twist. That when God in the Quran talks about, talks about Bani Israel, the children of Israelites, He Azawajal is talking about them from the perspective that they were the chosen people of that time. They mm -hmm. were the people of Moses, of Noah, of Abraham, yes. of uh, Jacob, of uh, Joseph, mm -hmm. and so forth. May, may God's and peace and blessings be upon them all. Um, and he, God talks about them from a point of reflection and reformation. That do not commit the mistakes that they did when they were the chosen people. They did things, they rebelled. Mm -hmm. um, don't go down that yeah. rabbit hole. In fact, there's a prophetic statement where the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said that, look, Muslims, you will follow the ways of the Jews and Christians and you will make the same mistakes like they would. So this has been prophesied. There is no hatred for Jews. There's no plan to exterminate Jews. If it was the Chinese Communist Party occupying Palestine, if it was the Hindutva mm -hmm. Indians, if it was uh, Christian Protestants occupying Palestine, the opposition, the occupation and the uh, opposition to it would be the same. Yeah. It just happens to be the fact that the divine chronology of events that played out was that there is an occupying settler Zionist entity in the heartlands of the Muslim majority mm -hmm. world when there is a thousand year plus history of Jews flourishing in Islamic civilization, whether it be Abbasid Baghdad, mm -hmm. Andalusian Spain, Ottoman Istanbul. But look at the history of Jews in Europe. That's where you will see exile, a thousand years of distrust because of alleged accusations of the internal uh, turmoil that they had caused as a result of loans and stuff like this. I'm just saying that, mm -hmm. th that, yep. th that that's, that's there. But in terms of in terms of the Islamic perspective, there is no plan to exterminate Jews. Yeah. Uh, Umar ibn Khattab, the second caliph of Islam, Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, Saladin, they invited the Jews back and wanted them to stay there and worship and stuff like this. The issue is Zionism. The issue is that settler colonialism. The issue is that apartheid regime. Um, that needs to be dismantled. Um, and I believe, and the Muslims believe that that is something that we must resist against. Um, do you believe all Jews control the media? No, I don't believe all Jews control all the media. I know as a simple fact that vast swathes of the commercial, private, stroke public, you know, um, shareholder owned media in the Western world mm -hmm. are owned by Jews. Uh, and I don't know whether they're Zionist or not. But I know they're Jewish, and you look at the early life section on Wiki in Wikipedia, and it's not wall to wall, but it's most of them. Uh, and the same is true with Hollywood, for example. The same is true with uh, with pornography. Yeah, so these are simple facts. So it's not do I believe that these people have a disproportionate representation uh, uh, representation in these fields? I simply know that they have. But it's not all Jews, and I don't blame all Jews for that. In fact, I, I regard it that the 
uh, many would regard just this very conversation as anti-Semitic no, simply because they say that you're fulfilling uh, anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic tropes. Yeah, tropes and conspiracy theories uh, about global Jewry. Yeah, about so, the so, so they do say that, right? I'd say this, that that's one of their defence mechanisms is to say, oh, you criticise us, but you're criticising all Jews. It's exactly the same. The Mafia is and has been at different stages a genuine criminal organisation. And in, the, in, in America of recently, it hasn't been all Italian by any means. Oh, the, back down the rabbit hole. No, no, but, early, uh, New, early New York, there were Jewish mobs. <laughs> and, indeed, I didn't want to say that. It could yeah. be taken as being anti-Semitic. It's just a simple fact. Yeah. But looking, so looking in, in, Italy, in Italy when it started, or Italy now, all the mafia are Italians. The bosses and the hitmen, all the rest of it, they're all Italians. Sicilian or Cal- Sicilian. You're never, never uh, in Dracula and so on. Yep. But you can criticise the mafia. You could go to war politically and organisationally and legally with the Mafia to destroy it and he wouldn't be attacking Italians. And it's the same thing, basically, the, the Zionist and the Sanhedrin-type Talmudic priesthood, uh, the self-appointed religious community groups like the Brit- Board of Deputies, British Jews and so on, these people have weaponized uh, the anti-Semitism uh, argument not only to, uh, to stop criticism but also to herd their own people into accepting their role into giving them money uh, and basically within that community you've got these self-appointed self-perpetuating mafia gangster type operations and their own community are the victims of it before even the rest of us are but mm-hmm. no i do believe that it's not just uh, europe has a deeper problem with the jews than the muslims do because uh, they don't in the talmud talk about your profit as boiling for eternity in hell in a big vat of human excrement, mm-hmm. like they do with Jesus. Uh, so, but it's also because Islam banned usury as well. And of course, Islam banned usury. The Prophet yes. Muhammad, peace be upon him, he banned yes. usury in the yep. markets of Medina. One, one of the, uh, we would have a far, far better world if there was no usury. A lot. Uh, you can talk about the imperialism and the, the British army or even you know the IDF or whatever. Like far more damaging to most of the world for most of history has been usury. To your anti-capitalist then? Yes. To some extent. Yes. Certainly anti-finance capitalism. Mm. Capitalism is one of those things, uh, it's a, a terrible system, but it's, there's aspects of it are better than any of the other systems that might be tried. But it's a great servant. It's an appalling master. And the usury side of it, the idea, so private enterprise uh, and so on. Can capitalism they, function without usury? I'm asking, what uh, do you think? I think there is a serious problem there. I don't think capitalism, it probably could function without usury. It can't function without an expanding population, can it fun- an expanding production. Can it function with, with the fiat cur- without the fiat currency? I think it would function better. Without the fiat currency? Yes, okay. because the fiat currency is intimately connected with usury mm-hmm. and they become a drain on productivity. Uh, so they're sucking the lifeblood out of the economy and the whole economy is designed to be making money. If you had a capitalist system which is, is designed and intended to fulfill human needs, I think you've got to have the private personal incentive for people to run it. Mm. So you can't statify it and you know, go down the communist road. Mm. Uh, but I don't see that you have to have an economic system whose primary base is there to make money upon money. Do you believe in the superiority of the white race? The white race is a hugely broad spectrum. So first of all, no, never have done. Secondly, God created all men equal in the sight of God. So 
even if you say to someone... You, you believe you will come from Adam so, and Eve? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, if... Um, if you say that uh, one group is superior to the other, then... Intellectually, uh, physically... Uh, intellectually. Certainly, it is not true morally. And I've, I've met many very intelligent, very intellectual... Brits and so on, university professors, they can hardly tie their shoelaces you know, in the real world. So just because they're highly clever, highly intellectual, or someone might be highly productive, create some brilliant invention, doesn't make them better than any ordinary person, so not superior. I do think that if you look historically, the Indo-Europeans in general and the Northwest Europeans in particular have been the driving force of creating the modern world. If you took everything out of the studio, that's, that comes originally from a designer more like me than you, we're sitting in a field. Mm -hmm. That's it. So I do believe that for a variety of reasons... Not Islamic civilization, no? Not Islamic yeah, civilization. Of course there was Islamic situation. The, the, but, the, 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 but, but none of what's surrounding us now other than the walls. That, that, that's it. So I do believe that the peoples of Northwestern European Europe have made, in the past, uh, a disproportionate... Uh, contribution towards the development of modern civilization, which is not an entirely unalloyed good. Yeah, they created the bad as well, mm. you know, TNT and all the rest of it. But in terms of thought, um, architecture, uh, music, technology, an awful lot of it's for our people. Having said that, looking at my people now, I see a people who, this is a people who once bestrode the world, again, for good and for ill, uh, and now they're a uh, a deracinated, godless, heathen, just a mass, a pathetic mass of dying humanity. So I don't believe in white supremacy now. As I say, we have in the past. Did, did you? Made, did made, you no, I, I, we have in the past made great contributions. I'm not saying I've changed my mind. I'm saying in the past there was something really special about, especially the Northwest Europeans, through a long period of history. And looking at the number that the has gone. How, how do you explain then? By the way, I'm, I'm not necessarily. If, if you're talking about the ancient Greeks, the Romans, mm -hmm. fine. But what about the Dark Ages of Europe, where you were killing women for being witches and the Bible wasn't even translated to the native languages the, 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 and Islam was <coughs> leading humanity and civilization for a thousand years in terms of geometry and algebra and science and architecture and reviving Greek texts. Uh -huh. In fact, the Renaissance would not have happened if there was no Crusades. The Crusaders came to the Muslim world, found out, hey, these guys are pretty smart and they've revived our literature to and they came back, you had the Renaissance. Had there been no Crusades and no interaction with the Muslims, there wouldn't have been a Renaissance. Had there been no Renaissance, there would not have been no enlightenment. There'd been no enlightenment, there'd been no colonialism. <laughs> Uh, I know that's a very yes, simplified. It's, it's very simplified. But, but, I think but is there truth in what I said? There's, there's a degree of truth. Okay. There's also a fact the Dark Ages were not that dark. This is you are killing women for witches. We no, gave, we, we actually, that wasn't in the Dark Ages. That's post Dark Ages. Okay, that's fine. in early modern Europe. We gave Muslim women political emancipation uh, in the seventh century. Yeah. Abayat al-Nisa. The, the women gave the Pledge of Allegiance to Prophet Muhammad fourteen hundred years ago. She had property rights. She had many other rights. And women in pre-conquest England, for instance, pre-1066, women in the ancient, even actually pre-Christian societies, had a great deal more genuine and worthwhile quality in terms of, it wasn't presented, they were the same as men. But Do you not like, do you but, not like but, the Battle of Hastings? But a woman, I do not, no. Um, uh, but the uh, <laughs> women were quite entitled to own property. Mm. Uh, women weren't regarded as an inferior if it came into a court, and so on. Why did that happen that, for many that, centuries in Christian that, Europe? That came, so that change 
came later. And it certainly came after the Enlightenment. Uh, so if you're saying the Enlightenment came from Islam, then you'd have to get the blame for that, which I'm not, I'm not trying to give you. No, you can uh, get the so inspiration from it by all means. Jean-Jacques Rousseau and many of the Enlightenment thinkers, John Locke, they took inspiration from Islamic thinkers like Imam Ghazali, Avicenna, many others. Oh. But the point I'm trying to say is that you can take an inspiration from something, you can't blame me on yes, that. Yes, true. I don't think Rousseau was anything to be proud of whatsoever. Yeah, but no social he's, contract theory and stuff like he's, this. He's, in the end, he's one of the fathers of modern liberalism, which mm. is utterly pernicious. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that the, the high period of... There is this the, the high period of European civilization was actually in late medieval times, uh, and obviously some things, aspects of architecture and thought and algebra and so on, yeah, did come back from the Muslim world, where Europe was hit particularly by the collapse that followed the collapse, the, the destruction of Rome, whereas the ancient culture, civilization, and learning stayed on in Byzantium. Uh, and I think that a large part of what Europe later on took from Islam, because quite a lot of it came from after that period. Mm -hmm. So Byzantium, the second Rome, was where uh, the great culture and learning that Europe had had in the later Roman times, coming from the Greeks, uh, that's where it was preserved. Uh, the collapse of Rome, obviously no one has to blame for that, but it's a, I think it should be a dire warning to people living in the West. That is where we're headed. Mm -hmm. We're headed demographically, uh, for such a huge bust, for a whole variety of reasons, that we face the risk of a civilizational collapse on that scale. And well, if, if that is the case, then uh, extremely uh, conservative and faithful Muslims will probably will resist that better than others. But I think you'd still be swept away in the flood just this disaster that faces Western Europe. People see, many Muslims at least, you know, the vast majority of Muslims see the existence of the occupying entity of Israel as an American colonial outpost. Yep. It was created by Arthur Balfour. Uh, at least at least the, 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 the stages of it were set yes. at that time. Uh, it also coincided with the downfall and the collapse of the Ottoman Caliphate after mm -hmm. World War One. Um, and they see that as an American colonial yep. outpost. Do you think that relationship between the American establishment and what you describe as powerful Zionist Jews, do you think that relationship could ever be severed? I doubt it. Why? Uh, because in the end, it's about money more than anything else. Uh, there is a bit, I don't, I don't wholly go down the tinfoil hat stuff of, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the Western elites all being Satan worshippers and so on, but there is something very, very dark in what they do and how they behave. Uh, so, no, I think that they're, those two groups are so intertwined. They're intertwined by interest, by history, by habit and by blood. Uh, I don't think they could be separated. Uh, so whether someone wants to call it uh, the Zionist entity or America, uh, it doesn't really make any difference. It's the same thing. Okay. And it's a menace, it's a menace to all of us. And I understand at present, you know, people will say, well, how can you equate uh, the impact of American global power on Britain with babies being blown apart in Gaza. You know, there's no, it's an unfair equation. There's no correlation. Which, so there's no correlation, but they've set my people on the road to extinction. Who are your people? My people are... Do you see me as one of your people? No, I see you as British. No. You can't be English any more than I could become Pakistani or my, my great-grandchildren couldn't become Pakistani if they moved to Pakistan because uh, it's an ethnic term 
I know within Pakistan you've got the ethnic groups beyond, but yeah, forgive yeah. my ignorance. Yeah. So from our point of view, British is a, a civic thing which anyone who obeys certain rules and hopefully contributes mm. and values this country in some way for all its faults. Are we allowed to, criti are we, are we allowed to criticise the government? Of course you can criticise it, absolutely. Are we criticise policies? Yes, absolutely Should so. Should we be afforded the same rights? Yes, absolutely so. Because you're British citizens and there's rights and responsibilities. As mm. long as you take the responsibilities, mm. you must also have the rights. Otherwise, it's it's a one-way thing and it's just, res apart from being wrong, it's going to create resentment in all sorts. So, yes, of course you're British, but you're not English any more than I'm not Scottish. I've got, according to my DNA, three, four percent Scottish. That doesn't make me Scottish. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, so that's the position there. So just to, to wind that up, that yes. On the racial hierarchy thing, let's wrap up. Okay, all right. Do you believe, so just to just, do you believe, not about the contributions, not about how civilization was led or anything, do you believe in the actual genetical superiority of a particular race over the other? No. But okay. I believe that all races and all cultures have a right to self-determination mm. and a right to exist and the duty to stand up for themselves without wanting to go and kill other people. Why do you why do you centre that around race and ethnicity? Let me explain to you why. Because the Prophet Muhammad upon be peace, in his final sermon, Nick, think about this: of all the things to include in his final sermon upon be peace, he chose to say the following: No Arab is more superior than a non-Arab. No black man is superior than a white man and nor the other way around, except for in God consciousness and good deeds. That is a very explicit statement from the Prophet to include in his private, mm. I mean, in his final sermon, the verbatim quote would be on the screen, that there is no superiority between an Arab and a non-Arab, non -Arab, and there's no superiority between a black man and a white man. Why do you define this collective identity around race, as opposed to, let's say, Christianity? I don't completely has a, a, a tendency to mm. but you're saying you identify exactly as this i said right at the start that you know white covers a huge range uh, and christianity is very very important obviously you're white without being christian but you're not a fully fledged member of our culture our society granted and, and you've got a, a reason i'm not talking at you i'm talking about someone who isn't a christian mm. but they're white they're missing something because they haven't got the faith of their forefathers. Uh, so uh, what your prophet said there, 100% right, I agree with that. Uh, but just because uh, there is someone, African is as good as a Brit, doesn't mean that we automatically have to accept the influx of millions of Africans and our replacement by Africans, because I happen to think that's a bad thing. That's not, and that's not because I'm hostile to Africans, I've got African friends. And smallish numbers, again, they can be part of a society. But if you're, as we're facing now, the, the dying, demographically dying Europe, we're told we have to import 100,000, 100 million, 200 million Africans over the next 30, 40 years in order to keep the capitalist system going. Well, thank you. I'd rather not have the capitalist system because that would destroy my culture and my people. And we are going to delve into a lot of that in this segment because now we're entering that segment where many eyes from my community are going to be watching this part. Now. Yep. And that is to do with your stance, stances, past and present, statements from past and present, or past mainly, with regards to Islam and Muslims. You have recently come up on people's Twitter feeds in the last four to six weeks. Mm -hmm. Since Gaza kicked off, I'm hearing and seeing uh, Nick Griffin's coming up on our Twitter feed. And people like what you're saying about Israel, you know, and, and you know, you know, highlighting the crimes of the Zionist entity and the various nefarious agendas in terms of how it's 
um, you know, poisoned British politics and mm. British autonomy in terms of its foreign policy and yeah. so forth. You know, people are liking that. It's also fair to say that those under 30 don't actually know you. Or, or, yeah. or, or whatever their perception they have of you is not that of my father. Yeah. It's not that of myself, actually, because when we spoke, I said, Nick, I remember you as a particular icon of a particular time. Yeah. And you are seen as someone who's responsible towards contributing towards a very difficult time for mm -hmm. Muslims and South Asians. Um, so I want to say a few statements yeah. Yeah. That, that, that you have made in the past. If I misquoted you, please correct me because uh, I don't want to be seen as unjust. Yeah. Um, and I want to just ask you if you stand by these statements. Mm -hmm. Or, or, or if you do, then explain why. And if you don't, then wicked. Um, in August 2001, you wrote in The Identity, a BNP publication, yeah. um, that Muslim clerics wanted militant Muslims to take over British cities with AK-47s. Do you remember writing that? I don't remember writing it, but I have no doubt you're right. So quickly, yep. we're in 2023. <clears throat> yep. 22 years have passed, mm -hmm. and there is no Islamic State of Birmingham or Luton. Yep. There are more Muslims, mm -hmm. there are more mosques, but there's no one with AK-47s on the streets. Yep. Right. So, when I was first involved in British nationalist politics, first in the National Front in the 70s, in the age of 15, and through until the, the late-ish 90s, then a bit later on in the British National Party, we didn't make any differentiation at all between Muslim and Asian. We had a vague sense that, the, obviously we knew there were Muslims, Sikhs and Hindus here amongst the South Asian population, but we didn't really care. We were thinking that this is something which isn't going to work. Now, I will come precisely to the point, but it takes a little bit of time. That's fine, get there. Where I come from. Get there. That I was brought up in a household. My father served, he was in the RAF in the Second World War, just a lowly aircraftsman. Uh, and he ended up in India, not as a occupying colonialist, just because he was ordered to go there and so on. And he was a, a radio mechanic. And he was given, what, what part of his job was to train young Indian volunteers to the RAF, the, the radio team, how men repair a radio and so on. And he said to me when I was very young, uh, he said I was there, to me then it seemed like a lifetime before, but this was in the middle 60s. So this is only like 15 years before he was there. And he said, I got on really well with these lads. I like them. Yeah, they were my boys because he's almost a similar age, but he's training them. My lads said, and then almost overnight one day, they went from being all just sitting there learning from me. They were killing each other, and then they were going absent without leave and killing each other's families because they were, because of this, this difference, Sikh, Hindu, Muslim. Exacerbated um, by the British. Exacerbated by the British, but nevertheless, this is... Yes, I accept that, but even without that, this is what he saw. I'm trying to explain where I come okay. from. Yeah, that's, that's what he saw. And so he said that that's where multicultural societies can go. They're fundamentally less stable than the Britain, which you're basically looking around most even of London in those days than there was. And if it carries on in not that many years time, you're going to end up with a country which is more and more multicultural, less and less British, white, whatever you want to call it. And it's unstable. And his great fear was that one day the same thing would happen here, this horror. Uh, and looking at history, you have to say that, yeah, there's benefits to a multicultural society, but there is a fundamental instability in most of them. And much of history, and it's not just Muslims against Christians, you look in um, former Yugoslavia, most of history, if you look at the bloodiest, most horrible wars there between when you've got different ethno-cultural religious groups. So this 
why do this to a Britain that's basically stable? Why turn it into this? And that was where my original, that's how I got involved in politics, was the idea that this multicultural mass immigration thing is likely to end badly and it should be stopped and reversed. But what do you do about the guys that are born here? What do you do about the people that are born well, here? Indeed, so, so, in 1994, I did a series of... Uh, talks, I did a, a speaking tour of the British National Party just after I first got involved with it, with the same message to every single branch in the country, basically, dozens of them, night after night. I said, look, we've got 20 years. We, we all know that this thing, we don't like it. We don't like it, not because we hate brown people. People honestly didn't. It's, there's aspects that's wrong to our community, but most of all, this is creating a society which one day is going to go horribly wrong in our country and wreck it. So the civil wars between different ethnic, ethnic groups, this is going to come. So, so in 1994, I did this series of talks that said, we've got 20 years in which to turn this around. After that, the demographic shift is so drastic and so rapid that it becomes impossible to turn this thing around through the ballot box. Uh, so I said, you've got to get sensible, got to clean up your act, stop all this silly Hitler worship nonsense, all the rest of it. You've got to be serious about doing politics, doing it right, which is what we did. It's how I made the British National Party electable. Uh, but that deadline was always there. And we're past the 20 years. So my position is that it shouldn't have been done. It's now too late to reverse it. So we've now got a multicultural society with all sorts of different groups. And none of them is going to be strong enough, even if things go badly wrong so that one group wants to get rid of the other group one way or another. We are not going to be strong enough. We can't get rid of you, in really crude terms, nor will you get rid of us. And you look at present at the Brits and you but think... But we're not looking to yeah, Exactly. But even if, uh, if a cycle of trouble really starts, then you become a moderate. I become a moderate. We get shot by extremists on our own side. Um, before they go and shoot anybody else. That's how communal violence goes. But just to be clear, more Muslim, and more Muslims, full of Muslims have never wanted... Remember, I, I can't speak... I'm going to talk about Muslims because that's my yes, faith that's community. You know. Yes. Uh, and, and by the way, you know when you said that before you never used to differentiate between Asian mm. and Muslim, that's because maybe 70% of all Muslims in the UK are from South Asia. Mm -hmm. They're either Pakistani yes, or Bangladeshi. Right? Yeah. But Muslims have zero interest in replacing the white race here. Mm -hmm. Muslims have zero interest in raising the black flag on Downing Street. Um, Muslims genuinely believe, especially in 2023, that British or white Western society will self-implode yourself. Hmm. You won't need an invading army of Saracens to come do that for you. You will do that yourself, yes. right? So we've never had an interest ever, the demographic shift. When my grandfather came here in 1966, we're going to get back to the point. Yeah? Yes. Uh, you know, it was never to settle here. And also do remember that many South Asians came upon invitation to rebuild yep, this country after the World War II because the ratio to men and women were problematic. Women were in the labor force. They need to replace that labor force with uh, subjects from the, the Commonwealth. Yep. But you came to rebuild this yes. country, I, right? You came here, you were bought here as whatever they told you. Yeah. You were bought here as cheap labor yeah. to, uh, to under, to under, to under nine wages. And they settled. Uh, the money and, was good. And there's an element within the, the powers that have influenced and created mass immigration throughout the Western world, who did it right from the very beginning as a way of destroying the resistance power of the indigenous population and a way of destroying Christianity. Not all of that came about. So I don't blame any of your people or any other group for coming here for a, you know, a better life for their kids to get on because Western imperialism and military interference had screwed up large chunks of your countries, all the rest of so it. So at least you can I don't blame that. anyone for, for, for coming. But coming back then to what, why I said what I did about Clerics, well. clerics. Right. And, and the clerics, right. AK-47s. So, up until 2001, mm -hmm. we didn't make any differentiation at all. 
And the difference, so people think, oh, the BNP started to help Muslims after September the 11th. It didn't. That's, the, that's the normal perception. That's the normal perception. It didn't happen like that at all. I was involved in the, uh, ele- in the general election campaign, which would have been May or June that year, in Oldham, where I stood. And during that campaign, we were doing a street one day with leaflets and so on, and a group of young white lads came up to us. So what are you doing? So putting out these leaflets. What's it all about then? So, so um, they said, so I said, no, we don't think they should be here in these numbers. And we think it's very unfair how our people are being treated vis-a-vis them. We don't hate them. They said, well, we do. 14, 14 years old. And then, then they said, uh, I said, we're at school with them. We know what they're like. We hate them. And they said they've got in their book, they tell us that in their book, this is their promised land and they're going to take it over. Lies. Maybe lies, but I'm explaining where I came from. So I thought, what on earth is this about? United Kingdom is not mentioned. I, I, I'd, I'd never heard anything about anything about this at all. So I thought, why? Well, I'm not going to be shown up by a group of 14-year-olds, or perhaps they're wrong, I don't know. So I went when I was next in London, I went to Foils, and I said I want an authoritative copy of the Quran, and they sold me one, which has got the imprint of uh, u- the University of Cairo or whatever, mm-hmm. and assured me this is a genuine good one and so on. And I read it, literally. And you mentioned the United Kingdom? It doesn't mention the United Kingdom, but as a, a prophecy uh, for Boadicea, the British queen who fought the, fought the Romans, that regions uh, that you never know, your descendants will know and they'll be theirs. So the Victorians took this as a prophecy that uh, they go and conquer the whole, you know, most of the world. No, no, but there are pro- uh, and, and I could see with, within this, there, 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 is there a was prophecy. a surah that it came about. That, there, you know, about the, that I could see uh, where uh, this came from. You no, know what it is. No, no, I'm, forget about the surah. Um, God explicitly says in the Quran that today I have completed your faith for you as Islam to dominate over all other religions. Yeah. Yep. Right. So, and, 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 and there is prophetic statements that say that Islam will enter every single home. There's another prophetic statement that says... I have seen the East and the West and my Ummah, my people, mm-hmm. as in my faith and my people, there will be all over the world. So in terms of global domination, that could be seen and interpreted in yes. many ways. That, yeah. could be, that could mean on the one hand, there will be Muslims in every part of the world. Others would say that the dominion of Islam and its systems and its laws will take over one day. Yeah. We're talking more towards the end of times, perhaps. So there are, but there is no explicit no. mention of the United yes. Kingdom. Yeah, of course there's or, or not. That, or that there is a duty for us yeah. here right now to fulfil that prophecy. Of, of course there's not. But what I'm saying is, this is, and I don't believe that 14-year-old uh, Muslim lads in Oldham uh, had any concept of Islamic jurisprudence yes, or anything like I that. Agree. But yeah. this is how they viewed it, and when they're winding up their white classmates, this is what they were telling them. Okay. So that's why I went and read this book, and I found stuff in it, which, yes, it can be interpreted that way. That's how they believe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I read the... Uh, read the thing cover to cover repeatedly and there are obviously verses which talk about um, no compulsion within religion and there's other verses which are extremely violent and you've got this as as is the bible uh, as is the bible as is the torah yeah uh, as is the uh, yeah indeed so but i understand obviously in the bible that the violence is mainly in the old testament it's abrogated by jesus in the new yeah Uh, we don't we don't accept that no of course of course you don't but nevertheless so i read this book which does have blood-curdling passages, and these women are lawful to you, those your right arm own, all the rest of it. And I, so I looked into this, and I'm talking to white liberals and talking to people on um, pre-having pre a television discussion and so on, and all I get from them is, no, it's a religion of peace, you're making this up, basically, there is no violence there. And mm. I'm reading this thing, and I'm being told, I'm not being told, no, it's written there, but there's an interpretation. Mm-hmm. I'm being told, 
you know, you're not reading what you're reading. So I didn't believe this. So I would still maintain that if you had an Islam which was purely based on the Quran, and I know it's, it's a, your viewers, it's a holy book and all the rest of it. So I'm not trying it's to the Quran and the Sunnah. Affect, yeah, I'm it, not trying to offend people in no, any but, way. But I'm saying that Quran it's not and, just the Quran. Yes, it's the Quran and yes. the prophetic teachings of the Sunnah. Yes, in, yes. indeed. So Muhammad's teachings but and actions. All, all that I've got at this stage mm -hmm. is nobody's saying anything other than when I'm saying, "Well, look, what is this about?" Nobody's saying anything to me other than, "Shut up, be quiet." You're an Islamophobe. There's no answers at all. All I'm getting from uh, the whole of the British elite is silence or condemnation. No one's discussing this issue. But in those times then, as I was reading it, that's what I could see. And nobody informed me of anything else. And there were hate preachers, obviously. Now I now understand that obviously those hate preachers and those who say you can't interpret anything. It's just the Quran and nothing, really nothing else. I understand that that's a minority and I think until I can imagine that with the Gazan thing now, the sheer injustice uh, and inhumanism of how the West is treating it is actually going to start pushing young Muslim men, 14, 15 year olds, towards the most fundamentalist extreme form of Islam you can get, uh, which I now would I, I now understand that, in fact, uh, there's it is interpreted this in, interpreted. So it is. I'll say softened. I don't mean soft in a Nick, bad way. Nick, uh, but at, at the time, that's where I was coming from. And this was a clear and present danger. And I still believe that there is a danger mm. that that strand will come to the forefront. And one of the reasons that I'm outspoken on Gaza and all the issues that go behind it is that uh, if Muslims, especially young Muslims, understand that there are people like me who are trying to be fair and are standing up for what's right, it makes it, I hope, more likely that they'll stay as Muslims who uh, accept that this faith is uh, interpreted and that it's a religion of peace, than be inclined to go to those who just say, look, these Westerners, they've so broken any pact, agreement, spoken or unspoken we have with them, we just go to war. Mm. Nick, I think it's very important that I have some contribution in this yeah. muslims are a very devout people we believe that the quran is the inimitable word of god it is the actual speech of mm -hmm. god uh, entirely preserved like no other scripture linguistically that is the miracle of the quran there are other miracles the commands and the prohibitions of god are timeless we will follow them to the T or at least aspire to follow to them and we'll, we will repent when we don't follow them or transgress or break them. We are a civilizational faith, meaning we believe God has laws, commands and prohibitions for his slaves, his creation, for all times and all purposes. To suggest that the God that created us um, doesn't have laws and commands and prohibitions for us to follow to be better human beings for eternal salvation would actually be limiting mm -hmm. the um, yeah. you know the greatness and the Im Im infinite omnipotency and the, and you know the divinity of God right so in an ideal situation Muslims are a civilizational people we want a unified Muslim world many of us do want to live under Islamic law we want to see societies framed and positioned and influenced and shaped around our values and our morals which are very conservative mm -hmm. and scripturally based at the same time we're very cosmopolitan in terms of 
including those who are not from that faith tradition. That's why Jews and Christians have immense protection under Sharia law. Yes, the same Allah that tells us that do not take the Jews and Christians as allies, indeed they are allies of one another in Surah Al-Ma'idah, is the same Allah that tells us that the closeness between the Muslims is with the Christians. Mm. Like my friend Sabu Rahma told you while we were having lunch. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say to you is that a fundamentalist means that Muslims are a civilizational people. We aspire to that. We would like that. We would like to live in a society which uh, is molded and reflects our values in society in the Muslim world, mm -hmm. not in the West where we are a diaspora minority, mm. but in the Muslim world, yes, we want that. And if that makes us fundamentalist, then quite frankly, it's a label that we'll take because Islam is fundamental. These are all labels that were not coined from us. Yeah. These were coined by Western establishments, by policymakers, by think tanks. These are not labels we give ourselves, right? So Muslims, the way we see it, is the truest form of following God, the Allah of Islam, is to of course worship him, to not attribute any partners, uh, associate any partners in worship to him, to testify the final uh, prophet as Prophet Muhammad, Apostle be peace, the final messenger. And that comes with obeying the laws. Mm -hmm. That comes with living in a society that's molded around that. Primarily where it has always been, not where it's never had has been. So if you're talking about a fundamentalist type, a fundamentalist type of Britain that wants to turn Britain into an Islamic society, no. If you're talking about Muslims who have aspirations yeah. to, to, to create a society and a civilization elsewhere that is more reflective of them and when if and when that time comes, we will happily leave. I think that's not something that's fundamentalist. I think that's a very normative position. Um, we do not want to wipe out the white race or the non-Muslim race. We see Britons and Muslims wherever they live. You know, we were in the elevator and someone said, I've just got back from Denmark, yep. right? And I cracked a joke, are we ready to take over Denmark? <laughs> we're not, we're not here to take over anything. We're here to just live, practice our faith, contribute in whatever best way we can. And if through engagement, action and speech, we can manage to convert, then Alhamdulillah, mm. and if not, then that's between you and your God in the hereafter. Do you think that's a fundamentalist take? No, I don't. No, it's a perfectly, it's a perfectly reasonable take. Uh, there, particularly there were, I think there will be again, um, people who are Muslims or claim to be Muslim, uh, the, the Abraham, Abrahamza types, the Andrew mm. Chowdhury types, and so on, who I think are fanatics. They're dangerous fanatics. They're a mirror image of Tommy Robinson. And I do believe they were used by the British establishment to no fulfill certain policies. Yeah. And especially, I, having seen what, what they've done with the Tommies, like Golding and so on, mm -hmm. how they've used them to try to set up this literally civil war divide, uh, is how they also used these Muslim crazies. Uh, and I... So I, th I think I, I perceived in talking with Muslims, especially recently, that I would say that that fierce, ferocious thing has declined. Can I ask you three things? Yeah. Do you believe Muslims wanting to peacefully establish a caliphate in the Muslim majority world is a problem? No, absolutely not. Do you believe? I think, I think the world would be a better place. I think, I think as we took him at, at lunchtime. No, an ISIS I think, fake caliphate. No, no. I think we're, we're, we're moving from the period where the West dominated the world for a mixture of reasons. We're moving towards a multipolar world, uh, and certainly in the short term, China is going to become the great 
economic and military power for, for, for a while. Uh, and I think that potentially this multipolar world will be a better world. Mm -hmm. The transition between from one power to another is very dangerous time. It always is. Now, always is. Uh, and I think that within the multipolar world, obviously, Islam has a place and it would surely be a better pole if it's united and without grievances and grudges where possible. So it's a confidence uh, and relaxed civilization rather than one which is feeling, you know, we're put upon, they're all out to get us and so on. So now I think one of the prerequisites of peace in the world, as far as you can ever get peace mm -hmm. in a, a world dominated by man, mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the prerequisites is a, is a just settlement of the, the Islam question, and that is for Muslims to have a, uh, if not, it's for you whether you have a state or not, but certainly for the West to stop interfering that's and, my second and, question. And worse. So that's my second question. Do you think it's an extreme or fundamentalist position to want for Muslims not to want British and military bases in our countries? No, I think. And not take our oil? No. I and then put up stooges there to oppress us uh, and sell weapons to people to them kill our own people? I think it's an absolutely reasonable and just position yeah. uh, that, that, should, that that shouldn't happen. And I think that the radical thing that calls itself Islam uh, has been deliberately weaponized by the people running the West. So Libya being a classic example. Mm -hmm. I went to Libya in 1987. It was a decent, happy country. I was free to walk around and people would talk to me as a foreigner. I have spoken to people who lived in East Germany at the time and they said that the state was everywhere and so on. If we'd met you then as a foreigner, we wouldn't have dared speak to you because we know we're being watched and so on. Libya was much more relaxed than that. But a radical form of Islam was weaponized by, there's no point blaming the Americans, more about, more about MI6 when you than say anybody radical, else. Are you, are you talking about, to, are you, when you say radical- To destroy Gaddafi. When you say radical, because it's important because the framing of these labels is problematic for us. Yes. Because, because, because you know, we've been called radicals for believing in the most basic normative yeah, yeah. conception. So, so are, you, are you talking about those who commit criminal acts by taking the law into their own hands and committing acts of terrorism in the name of Islam. Yeah, is yeah, that what you're talking I'm, about? I'm, talk, I'm talking about the, and I understand the point about jihad being a, an inner struggle as well as an external struggle. No, 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 so, but it also um, has a military so, aspect. Yes, it has a military aspect. Absolutely. So I'm talking about the ones who take it, this is a military struggle. And, Entirely. Uh, Everyone's and, an enemy. And, and, and everybody that's is not, an enemy. That, that's and, not and we're going to kill and behead no, people no, and all the rest of it. No, so I'm, I'm talking about the dash types. Yeah. That's uh, a fringe, not even a fringe. That's not even fringe. Yep. It's, it's, it's a but, minority. But surely you can understand how, especially when the Western media. But did you use that to depict so Muslims like that back no, then? No, no. Uh, and again, now coming back to your father's point, yeah. that, you know, you're still talking to him. Yes. He caused us so much trouble. Yeah. I spoke at, I won't say countless meetings, most of them were fairly calm and so on. But in some places, uh, like Bradford, like Keithley, speaking there, there in the early 2000s, I was going into an audience which was fighting mad against their Muslim neighbours because of the grooming issue, by criminal elements, I think, uh, and because of, and because of and scum elements, definitely. Yeah, yeah. By the time I was heavily involved in the British National Party, the great stream of racial violence, as I found it and experienced as white communities experience, are white lads being beaten up because they're white by lads who are of Pakistani heritage. In the north and the Middle East. In, in the north, which is where we were campaigning, where we were talking about. And the speech that... The, they, counter, the counter is that, the, count, the counter argument would be that Bradford, Oldham, Rochdale, Nelson, these places, 
um, this, these are places where our taxi drivers got attacked because of your type of politics, where yeah. our restaurant workers got attacked and our takeaway guys got attacked and our women got attacked on the way to mosque yes. and stuff because of the kind of rhetoric and the ideology so, that you're pushing. So I'm just saying that's yes. the counter. Yeah. I understand that's the counter. And I would say that that's... Uh, now, I can understand when upper-class lefties say this, white people, saying because they've got this utter contempt for the working class, they assume they'll do nothing unless they're manipulated by some silver-tongued mm. outsider who comes in and causes trouble. Your people coming from a much more working-class background, you should understand that's not the case. Working-class communities decide things for themselves. And they've decided in... Bradford in 2003, that we're basically at war with these people because of what we're doing. The police aren't interested. Nothing's happening. If we go to the police, they accuse us of being racist and they arrest us and so on. And the, the reason that I was acquitted by the jury over the speech where I said, this is a vicious, wicked faith and they're that's taking our girls. That's, yeah. the, that's, okay. the most, that's the most famous goal yeah, right. attribute to you. So I said, a, a vicious, wicked faith and they're taking girls with the right arm because it's what it says in the Quran, right? Mm. The reason I was acquitted... And, I, and outrageous interpretation. Yeah, outrageous. Now, outrageous. Your, your people seeing that on the BBC and then learning I'm acquitted... Outrageous. ...just thought, this is appalling. Yeah. What the hell's wrong with this white jury? They yeah. obviously hate us as well. Yeah. See, the jury saw this whole, the whole speech and the context of it is that I'm saying, you've got this serious problem. And yes, I'm labelling this and say, this is an Islamic thing rather than a Pakistani trash in the nighttime economy thing, which I think would be a fairer description of it. Uh, but I'm also saying, but you don't blame the whole community. Don't go and smash windows. Did you actually say Yes, that? I did. Why do you think they, why do you think they acquitted me? Mm. Because I'm saying, don't do that, because that community isn't all to blame. Yes, it, we would like it if their community leaders would stand up and vigorously say this is wrong. Mm -hmm. But these, a lot of these people, the minute you're a criminal gang, they're tough. People don't, don't want to go up against There is them. no clash and between the indigenous population and, for instance, settled West Indian Sikhs and Hindus. There is, however, an enormous correlation between high BNP votes and nearby Islamic populations. Yep. The reason for that is nothing to do with Islamophobia of young English girls for sex by a criminal minority of the Muslim population. That's what, that's what I said. Newsnight 2008. Right, okay. So it's very rare for the media to allow me to make a statement like that, which seems reasonable. It's usually cut, 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 so they just get the bad bit. But coming back to this speech, because it's an important thing, yes. and why I was acquitted. So I'm saying to people that you don't blame the whole community. If you do that, all you'll do is drive their young men into the hands of the extremists. Mm. And OK, probably, I'm sure now I overestimated the strength of the extremists. But they were there. Seriously, I'm sure there still are some there. There's going to be more as a result of the Gaza thing, I fear. Uh, and so the solution isn't that. It's not to go and smash windows or fight people. The real problem is the police won't act against this criminality mm. and the papers won't talk about it and the council won't do anything about it. And in order to solve that problem, you've got to organise politically and get our voice into the council so we can tell the police what they must do. So I'm giving a political solution to this. And I've, as I say, only in a few meetings was it that tense, but I honestly couldn't count the number of young white lads who have just who just got involved in the NF and then the BNP, who were fighting mad and on the verge, if not already, using violence against their Muslim neighbours, because that was the only way they could see forward, because they're, they're ignored, they're vilified, their community is completely disregarded, and it's a shambles. And the minute they're involved in politics, so they can feel that by giving out leaflets or knocking on doors, that they're doing something constructive, it takes the violence out of it. Mm -hmm. So I understand, especially when the media take the little snippets, that's some of the snippets of my speeches. So, yeah, of course, I understand how it may genuinely be that that 
by a snippet is actually going to cause some unfortunate taxi driver to get trouble. But the speech as a whole and political involvement, people should have learned this about Northern Ireland. If you deny a whole people basically basic rights, as the Catholics were in Northern Ireland in 1968, as black people were in Brixton in 1980, 81 and so on, as Muslims, I'm sure, have been or feel they are, but also as the white working class in places like Keithley have felt, if you deny them the right or even the ability to organise politically, you're going to get physical trouble, violence and hatred. Um, on the issue of, and these are two clarifications, I, again, I want yeah. for uh, non-Muslims and Christians watching this and British patriots. Um, with regards to the grooming issue, let's be unequivocally clear. Um, these people are criminals. Mm -hmm. They are not a representation of our faith. They are not a representation of anything that is remotely Islamic. Mm -hmm. The issue the Muslims have with that type of language, the dog whistle type, is that it is attributed and associated to the faith. Mm -hmm. Hear me out. So when you read the verses of the Quran from Surah An-Nisa where Allah tells us you're allowed one wife, two wives, three wives, four wives on what your right hand possesses, mm -hmm. referring to concubines and slave mm -hmm. girls. Yeah. Absolutely, there is no denying in that verse. Yeah. But there is an important context. That context is that when you're living in a world where slavery and concubines are allowed and is the norm, that applies. In a society and a civilization where that does not exist, that does not apply. Do, is, mm. do you understand that? Yes. Yep. Where there's a world where you can have concubines and harems and slaves and a slave trade, those rules of Islamic justice apply. Yeah. We don't have that today. And the default position in Islam is to free the slave. Mm -hmm. So I need to clarify that. Number two, with regards to the grooming gangs, these people do not represent Islam. Yes, they happen to be the rotten apples from our community. Mm -hmm. What do you then say? We would say, then what do you say about the, the rotten apples from your community? Who also give vodka and crisp packets to young girls lurking around, yep. young white girls lurking around in car parks and, 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 and from care so homes. I say hang them. Yeah. I say hang them. So the laws, the laws of Islam for these kind of type of criminals are far harsher mm -hmm. and preventative than any kind of secular liberal laws in any yeah, de sure. democracy, number yeah. one. Number two, the issue here is that the Muslims would counter this. We have no problems ousting and outing these criminals. What we would say is this. Let's talk about two factors here regarding the whole grooming situation number one and i swear by allah this is not victim blaming but it's an introspective conversation that has to happen these guys were trash criminals they couldn't really necessarily care if it was white brown or black it's just mm. that the demographic that was available was white and the reason why what some of the perpetrators said was well, so these white girls were hanging about mm. you know they're hanging about what are 12 13 14 year olds hanging about you know, why were they so easy to groom? Why were, why were they yeah. so... And why did they find uh, coming into cars with older guys and drinking? So basically they're explaining that why were white girls more susceptible to being groomed? Some of them said this. Yeah. Secondly, why are we not talking about the hypersexualization of Western liberal society that makes men want to do such nefarious and sexually deviant things and also gives a safe space and an acceptance to young girls to think that it is okay to want yep. these things as well. So that's all Muslims are saying. Mm -hmm. We will call out our criminals. We're saying that the laws of Islam will deal with it far harsher if, if, if we lived in such a society. But it's a problem that transcends race. Yep. And according to findings of a 2020 Home Office report concluded that 
such group-based child sexual exploitation offenders are most commonly white. White victims come from many backgrounds, including boys. Her name is Ella Cockbane. You heard of this lady, Ella Cockbane? Not particularly. No. Um, she, she she came and uh, responded to Swella Braverman's uh, arguments mm -hmm. about yep. um, the stats about Pakistani grooming gangs and so forth. So she wrote in The Guardian, she goes, while victims come from many backgrounds and including boys, to the government's own disappointment, it found no reliable, generalizable evidence of ethnic disproportionality among such offenders. So what we're saying is, for your listeners and our listeners, groomers are evil, scum. Many of these were married with children. Mm -hmm. If the Islamic law was implemented in another part of the world, you, trust me, they'd be dealt with very differently. Yes. All Muslims are saying is stop trying to make Hadith a Muslim problem. Um, stop trying to ignore the fact that why are the young white girls mm -hmm. in parks? Yeah. Where are their parents? Do they know who their parents are? What, what's going on here? And number two, why are we not talking about the sexual perversion of society that makes that appealing, yep. makes that type of deviancy appealing? That's now, what we're saying. Now, everything that you've said about your community's position on, on so on, absolutely fine. I agree with you 100%. Mm. What you read out from some leftist scumbag uh, working in the home office and so on, no. Okay. This is a... The, 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 the street grooming thing is overwhelmingly from communities, from the trash element within communities which are Muslim. Now, the online sexual grooming, especially the actual paedophilia, because I don't regard this as paedophilia, because these girls are almost all of them post-puberty. This is hebophilia, and it's wrong, and those people should hang. But most of the online grooming gangs and the, and the, uh, the gangs operating through social services, this sort of thing, they're white. They're white scum, and they should be executed. Are you, are, you saying that, are you saying that there's complacency from those elements within the institutions? There's, of course there's complacency. Of course there's complacency. Not least because these are white working class kids. They don't give a damn. If it was happening to the middle class kids, there'd have been a lot more trouble a lot earlier. But they don't give a damn. But white now, working class kids are the demographic majority. White working class people are the demographic yes, majority. Yes, so. yes. But, that, but it's because they're white working class that the, the British upper class, yeah. overwhelmingly white, doesn't give a damn. But these are your countrymen. Yeah, of course, of course. But these are your countrymen. And, 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 and I do give a damn, but I also recognise that if this was done to any healthy community, the people doing it would have been, if not killed, they'd have had, they'd have had the seven bells of shit kicked out of them. It would have stopped very early on. And um, according to the Labour MP, Sarah Campion, a million girls raped. Actually, it does include the uh, Hindus, West Indians, to a lesser degree the Sikhs. They also say this has happened to us as well but most of them white english now why the hell are the fathers the brothers the uncles because if the state first of all you have a responsibility in a civil supposedly civilized society to go to the state for so the, the 2020 findings of the and government yes broadly yeah it's just a just another whitewash cover-up so which is which which will only make white working class people who feel that they're victims of this think the whole thing is a cover-up uh, and but it's based on data. So, 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 so we don't blame. Are you rejecting the data? It, it, it's, it's based on what Home Office leftists want to find. You can prove anything with data. So, yeah, I do reject it. And it's certainly, a Tory government. Spe speaking, yeah. It's a Tory government. And so? The it's a Tory, the, 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 it may be a Tory government, which is fundamentally liberal. It's not conservative in any way, shape or form. Ah, uh, this except, is your ideal. Your brethren. Except in name. And, and, and certainly the people running the civil service are not remotely conservative. It's dominated by hardcore leftists who have an intense 
class-based contempt for the white working class and a hatred of everything British as well. So, uh, and trying to pretend and, and tell white people in someone like Bradford, it's not happening, don't worry. That's, that's not going to do any good at no, all. No, the thing is happening. They're saying there's not disproportionality. But it's not, but it's there's not, not disproportionality. Yeah, but, that's what they're saying. That's the, what they found. The perception is that it is. So uh, uh, it's your interview, but can I, if I can ask you one question? So I said, this is the Muslim position, and I accept that. Yeah. So in places where this has been going on, and your community must know it's going on. It, yeah, in I, some I, places, I yeah. So have people actually, have imams preached and said, Big style. Look, this is wrong. Absolutely. They have. Absolutely. Right. Yes. I yeah. shall, shall I tell you something? I'm against imams having to do that. Shall I tell you why? Because when you start doing that, when faith leaders start addressing their community uh, by saying, don't groom, don't do mm -hmm. these things, you, it appears to us that this problem is linked to our religion. Mm -hmm. Why are imams and sheikhs and alims and, and basically religious leaders, men of sacred knowledge, why are they telling their community and their menfolk not to do this? Because the, the veneer and the feeling and what that shows is that then it's a problem that's inherent in your communities to do with the faith. Mm -hmm. Now, that said, due to the pressures and the expectations of the host people, the host indigenous people, our fellow white Britons, loads of imams shouted it from the pulpits. Mm -hmm. I believe that they shouldn't have because I believe that as soon as Imams start doing that you've accepted the the argument that this is something linked to our faith but we don't believe it is at all because when these guys do what they do they're just sexual perverts yes yeah they, they are trash yes so yeah. if they were if they were citing verses of the Quran of Surah and Nisa, yeah. if they were saying yeah the Prophet married Aisha at six and consummated at nine and these kind of things then I can understand why it has to be addressed from the pulpit yes. but they weren't Nick. so from my position it would, in an ideal world, your community leaders and the politicians there, not the imams, they should have said, look, this is going to stop. They should stop because, not least, one, it's wrong, but two, it's going to bring all sorts of trouble down on our community as a whole. And they should have stopped it by physical violence. But I can't blame your people, people for not doing so because none of the fathers and brothers... A lot of these guys got bad. From, from, from my community. A lot community of these guys, when they got found out, some of these guys that got found out, before they got arrested, they got their heads kicked in locally. But they... Good. They did. And if they were let out back to the community, they'd get smashed. But obviously, don't even, the law doesn't even allow that. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Excellent. But it's unfortunate that it shouldn't have come to your community because people from my community, the fathers, should have dealt with it first. But you're dealing with a, 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 a population, a, a demographic, who've had their culture, their identity, their faith ripped out by the roots. Let's wrap up on this Islam. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm just going to read out a few more quotes. I don't want individual responses, but I just want to wrap up. Um, BMP conference 2009, apparently you said 100,000 Muslims that are disloyal to Britain to be replaced by the Gurkhas. Channel 4 2009, there is no place for Islam in Europe. Islam is cancer. Um, BBC 2009, I didn't say anyone should be murdered at sea. I say bolts should be sunk. They can throw them a life raft and they can go back to Libya. Um, Nikki Campbell, Radio 5, 2010. I am not anti-Muslim, I'm anti-Islam. I'm just going to ask you this final question, Nick, before we can move on. But I have to ask you yes. this. Do you have any regrets over these statements? Do I have any regrets, regrets over those statements? Do you still stand by some of these statements, all of these statements? No, I don't. I suppose if I'd been more circumspect, circumspect, 
kind of fairer. It would have been better. No, I'm not going to. There's no point in me apologising for something I said. There's things there, and especially. Would you apologise to those where those statements had an actual real life impact on people? If they did, yes. Yep. But most of the problems of in a multicultural Britain come as a result of we've got a we've got people in power who don't actually give a damn about your people or my people. They're interested in power and money and doing what they have to get on to, to get on. Uh, and uh, you know we can have a, a blame game. Well, your community didn't do to enough, or I said this and all the rest of it. It doesn't really help us go forward. I'm talking about those statements. Yes, yeah, those, 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 those statements. Yeah, they're pretty harsh. I mean, like the Libyan one. That's not that's not directed against Muslims. The vast majority of refugees yeah. coming from there are Muslims. The, most, well, the, uh, I'm speaking there. Once Gaddafi had gone, it's a, a, a channel whereby people from all, from all over Africa come through. And it's not a question about whether they're Muslims or the not. Vast majority and, and, of and those people, again, the context of that, I'm saying, look, and I spoke in Parliament about this. I say, you can have two ways of dealing with this. You can be tough and make it clear that none get through, or you can let them come through. And as a result, thousands will die en route, as they do. Whereas if you sink a boat near to the Libyan shore, so you make it absolutely clear, you're not, not one of you is coming through. Sink a boat and give them life jackets. I'm saying you're not going to kill anybody, but it's tough. And I said to the Liberals, in, exactly in the context of that, uh, that if you have your way, thousands will die because they'll try and get across and most will get through and most will be drowned. So I'm, that's not a harsh, unfeeling thing. It's a simple way. Uh, and I know that uh, white people looking at this will say, would think, well, wait a minute. Is Pakistan in the last few weeks has reportedly decided to expel, what is it, 1.7 Afghan refugees. Disgusting. Uh, but we're not allowed to do that. No, no, but what, what Pakistan's doing from an Islamic standpoint mm. is very bad. But do you not understand why they're doing it? Yeah, but, but I think that's also a problem to do with nationalism. Mm -hmm. I believe that the nation state, the, ne the secular nation state, its frameworks, its motions, its cogs and wheels creates this mindset. This is my position that one of the problems with what we say in Arabic, asabiya or tribalism, of which nationalism, modern mm -hmm. nationalism is an aspect of it, that it creates this mindset. It's less compassionate. But you would probably argue that too much compassion results in yeah. the multiculturalist shithole that you think that we have, yeah? Are you still of that position? Yeah. Before we move on to the, I guess, one of the reasons why we are having this conversation, I want to ask you squarely, do you hate Islam? No. Do you hate Muslims? No. Do you hate South Asians? No. Do you wish for us to leave this country? If it was possible by agreement, yes. Would you pay us to leave? Yes. Yeah. But here, we're exactly where I was years ago. Oh. What I would say, if you remember earlier on in this discussion, I said that I said there's 20 years in which to turn this around. Mm. And after that, there's no way. So we're in that position now. So we have to be realistic. And it's a, it, always people, especially on the extremes of politics or religion, they confuse what they'd like with what is possible. It's a very, very dangerous thing. So I'm now saying I'm getting lots of stick in the, you know, the white nationalist and racist community and so on, when I'm saying, look, you can't reverse this. And they're just saying, oh, we just cut off the benefits uh, and we say they're going, you know, and they'll go, look, Pakistan is kicking out 1.7 million. We could do the same. Of course we couldn't. It's absolutely impossible for all sorts of reasons. It would be a civil war which nobody would win. Also, Britain's so, an island and, and Pakistan and Afghanistan yeah, are both Muslim nations. There's, 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 there's all sorts of reasons, yeah. but it can't be done. So it's childish. It's tooth fairy politics to pretend this can be done. So my position hasn't changed. It's just the time's run out.
So I now believe that we've got this multicultural society, which has a tendency to be fundamentally unstable, especially when there's uh, ideologically and financially directed extremists, which are present are mainly on my ethnic side of the fence, the Tommy Robinsons and yep. so on, who are being and the Douglas paid, Murrays. At, paid and the Douglas Murrays, paid and facilitated to tear this society apart and plunge us into civil war. Now, I think it's quite likely they won't succeed. Why? Uh, because in the end, uh, to have a civil war, you've got to have two sides that really want to fight. And most people don't really want to fight. But they're trying to. Muslims yeah. don't want to fight. But, but if... So, you know, Muslims yes, don't want to no, fight. But if Tommy Robinson had got his way, when in about 2000 and... But they get smashed every time they go to these areas. In about 20... When was it? 2016, 17, when Tommy Robinson and a little group uh, had a meeting with my friend and colleague, Jim Dowson, I believe you spoke yeah. to. Uh, and they said, right, we've got this... And, and Jim is a, a genius on uh, PR and exploiting social media. So what, this so is we, Jim who founded Britain First, yeah, right? Yes, he founded Britain First and he left it. Let's come on to that in a, in a bit, actually. Or, or you can perhaps ask him. Yeah. Uh, perhaps thank you, but make a very interesting guest for you. Uh, but uh, they were saying at this meeting, right, we want you on side because we're going to get pictures of the prophet, obscene cartoons. So depicting is bad enough. But then in obscene cartoons, and we're going to get uh, gangs of young blokes to go into Muslim areas and have demonstrations and all. And Jim said, "So you're going to, you want a civil war?" I said, "Yes." So he said, "Well, you know, have you actually prepared for this? You know, so that when when you get white working class communities, when there is a civil war, have you got any way of helping them fight it? Oh no, we're not interested. All we want is the war." Now, that's there's people out there and the, the whole cenotaph, the Muslims are going to desecrate the poppies. Out, outrage. Poisonous nonsense. But you're touching, they know they're touching a really sensitive button with the Brits. Just as you know, someone accidentally tears a page of a Quran and it's, yeah. for you people, yeah. touch the poppy for us. It's one of the few sacred things. But the PR disaster left. was a blowback. So actually it was a blowback. Yeah, but, they, but they meant it to start a civil war, not just to cause a bit of trouble. Not just to get Suella Braverman to become Prime Minister, that's a side issue. Yeah. They, they're trying to create a civil war. And if they get it, there'll be 30 years of horror. Yeah. Uh, and, and initially, the whites will lose massively. Because your people, the, the, more, the criminal elements, they're heavily armed. Ours aren't. You're organised. You've got a network of community organisations and mosques. If push comes to shove, your people are equipped to fight a civil war. Mine aren't. So we get the shit kicked out of us for the first X million dead. Once you turn off, which it would happen, you turn off the uh, the, the default position of the, the Western mind mm. is psychotic violence, organised military industrial violence. That's our default position for hundreds of years. That's a horrible we, position. It's a horrible position, but it's, it's a default position. position. It's been switched off to an ethno-masochistic, cowardly, pathetic, completely the other way, mm. liberal thing. And if this kind of trouble flick the switch back, then, because, first of all, the Ulster loyalists are away with the fairies on the Gaza issue, and then the, Isra then the Zionist lobby, they pour weapons and training in, and no side would win. You'd have 30 years of horror, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, dead, and at the end of that, the by then, older Tommy Robinsons, and the older whoever will be the hardcore extremists that come on your side and shoot you, as well as me, mm. uh, at the end of it, they'll sit down because either the Americans or the Chinese or someone will say, look, you know, this is getting in the way of trade. We need to settle this down now. Sounds uh, all very sinister and scary. Do you honestly think they could lead that way? This is where, well, this is what could happen. I'm not saying it will. This is what could happen. At the end of the 30 years of horror, 
the bastards who helped to cause it will settle down just like in Northern Ireland and they'll sit at these big fancy dinners and they'll take the money from the foundations and they'll sit in Parliament together with some sort of peace agreement. Mm. And seeing that as a possibility, I'd far rather be sitting here talking with you mm. and you addressing my people who are watching this. They're thinking, I didn't know any of that, what he's saying about how they treated. They beat up groomers. Wow. We did. Didn't know that. And hopefully your people might be thinking, seeing, well, some of what I'm saying, especially when we talk about Gaza, it's sensible. So we don't have to take, you know, these people aren't all out to get us. So perhaps we can short circuit the process and build a multicultural society, which does work. And one last thing on that, the, what we're told, what we're sold by the left, or the BBC and so on, as a multicultural society, where all of us agree that LGBTQ plus is fine and everybody marries across their boundaries and all the communities just merge. Mm -hmm. So we become a raceless, ruth, rootless, faithless, coffee-coloured population who consume Coca-Cola and McDonald's. That's my ultimate nightmare. I'd actually rather have a civil war between mm -hmm. us and you. So we have boundaries and so on. And there's your community and my community. But... Neither of those is anything like decent when there's at least a hope because in, in the end most people are decent and self-interest alone dictates you don't really want to be involved in a civil war. 18-year-olds want to be involved in a war. 22-year-olds often do. I've got 10 grandsons, so nine grandsons and a granddaughter. I don't want a civil war because those, some of those boys will die in it the same as your kids will. So if we can head this off at the pass and addressing issues, which is why I'm very glad we addressed the grooming issue. More more difficult for your community than my community. Yeah, Difficult for my community to understand and accept what you're saying, but still we discussed that. And also there's in the big picture, because Muslims don't think in a nationalist or a tribal way. I'm a tribalist. Yeah, I'm a nationalist. We're not. But you're, but you're we're, not. We're, we're, so, we're, we're, so, pa so we're, we're pan-Islamic. Yeah, so I, I understand that. We're pan-Islamic. But most white people thinking, well, why are these Pakistanis in Britain and so on? Why are they getting so upset about what's happening half a world away in Israel? It's really nothing to do with us. It's nothing to do with them. I understand that it is. Because there are Muslim and, brothers and, and sisters. Yeah, and, and how people, how, how the Western power elite is treating, it's not just the Gazans. The Gazans, are the, it's not the first stage, it's the latest stage of a planned ethnic cleansing. They talk about uh, from one river to the you know, from the river to, to somewhere else. I better not say it in case it gets you knocked off. From the river order. to the sea, Palestine will be free. That is nothing like as extreme as from the, the brook of Egypt, from the Nile to the Euphrates. Mm. Everything must be a Jewish state, a Zionist state. Mm. And this isn't the crackpots. This is Netanyahu and his coalition partners. So this is the expulsion of every Palestinian, Christian as well as Muslim, obviously most now Muslim, all Gentiles, but, but also uh, the removal of everybody across a vast swathe of the Middle East, mm. most of whom will become very angry refugees here uh, because most Arab countries have got more sense than to take them. So onto that, it's so absolute madness. And I want to try to avoid that or at least let your people understand that there's some people on the white British side who get it. During your time, before we get into the Israel-Gaza, you kind of bring it close to the podcast with that subject. What was the conversation like uh, in during your times in the BMP and just generally your, your overall experience about the undeniable link between Western-led wars, which Britain has uh, participated in at the behest of America, mm -hmm. Iraq, Afghanistan, primarily, but not exclusively, um, and the link between Western military interference in the Muslim world and the refugee cri crisis. We met my friend Obeida up here, yep. who was an Iraqi. Um, 
the Iraqi refugee crisis started after the Iraq war. There's no WMDs, there's no Al-Qaeda yeah, being harbored. Obama even apologized by saying that we caused the birth of ISIS. We created that vacuum that gave birth to the ISIS. Um, and he armed them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Afghanistan, hey, look, you've handed yes. it back. You've handed it back to the, 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 the Taliban. And there wasn't a single Afghan on that plane going into 9-11. Yeah. Um, and that's created the refugee crisis. During your experience in your political career, don't people on the right understand the link between Western-led wars oh, yeah. and the refugee migrant crisis? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I spoke... You bomb people there, yes. they will come here. Yeah. For, for well more than a decade, for yeah. nearly 20 years, I spoke perhaps three or four meetings every single week to primarily working-class communities, mainly, mainly men, the length and breadth of Britain. And I usually spoke, sometimes I'd say, right, I'm not coming with a speech. You ask the questions, because you're here with a speech. It's just what I intend to say to try and manipulate you. You ask the questions. Don't tell me what you want to hear. Just ask the question and then see at the end of it, oh, do we actually agree? And the level of sophistication, and we have long, serious political discussions with people who, you know, to the, to the likes of the posh people on BBC, on BBC, these are almost subhumans. These are the knuckle-draggers, you know, the morons. And they're not serious political discussions. And among the things that I would say there was, yeah, we're not blaming them. One of the reasons they're here is that... We're bombing uh, them there. Is, is that we're bombing them there. So you're here partly because my, my father was in India in 1946. Yes. Yeah, of course. And it goes back further and further beyond that. Yes. But, but currently... You're here because it's not just a Muslim thing. I don't know if Muslim Chad is even a Muslim country. Chad is a Muslim country. Chad, Chad is. Chad is a Muslim but country. France hasn't been looting Chad of uranium and poisoning the place because of Islamophobia. Mm. It's money, mm. money, money, money. And so, if you, in a, a vaguely normal world, if a country discovers oil or discovers uranium, it should make its people richer and happier, and they can do things and have schools and hospitals. It's the kiss of death to any poor third world country to discover something like that because in come the vultures and they loot and strip and even if they let you develop it it's with borrowed money you pay back at interest so it's a disaster so i've always been now john tyndall my predecessor in the bmp he was a british imperialist he was a little flag waving man i've never been a british imperialist yes we had you know the colors of the union jack running through the bmp lettering and so on because you can't appeal to a British people who still have a sense, yeah, we're British, that's our flag and so on. You can't uh, come out with ideological perfection and start saying, we're going to invent our completely new flag because every, nearly everything our country has done abroad in the last 200 years has been wrong. You can't do that. So I've used the flag, but I've never been a British imperialist. And I'm absolutely convinced that before you could begin to have a sort of peace treaty between the, the two great religious powers of the world, Christianity and Islam, before you can begin to have a peace treaty uh, whereby perhaps some of you, your community, voluntarily will think, well, look, it's better there than it is here. It's not just the weather. You know, the whole thing, the, the demographics of Pakistan, it's a lively young country. It's now growing. There's peace and you know, all the rest of it. So some people would go home, which makes it easier to keep the balance of population so the society remains stable. Because if one group is spreading more than is growing far more than the others, then you get problems. Three things, Nick. It's yep. very important, it's related. If Muslims here in the UK and all the Western countries that they're in, third, fourth generation, if they saw no meddling in their countries of origin, their motherlands, 
if they saw that there could be political autonomous change mm -hmm. without the interference of the CIA and dark powers and entities who want to enslave our countries through the IMF and World yep. Banks and these kind of things, if it was viable for us to resettle, trust me, we'd move. Right? If there was a future caliphate which was more reflective of our society and our morals and our religion and our morals and stuff, we would go there. The point of the matter is, we can't. Not, of course, of course not. Iran no. is not an example. Yes. Saudi is not an example. Even the new Taliban Emirate is not an example. These are not because we need military bases, Americans and Brits to leave. Leave. Because whilst you're there, it would always feel like a colonial outpost. I, I, I agree, absolutely. And it's not so it's not just military, it's also the whole, the whole economic system yes. and so on. And this has to be put right, uh, because otherwise we're constantly at, you know, at loggerheads, uh, and that somewhere or other is going to cause trouble uh, uh, and, and, and horror. And at present, it's mainly causing horror in your lands. Yes. It's got the potential to cause horror in Europe. Now, to be brutally honest, I'm more concerned about horror in my land than a land far, far away. Understandably. Uh, but... Uh, it's wrong there anyway. It's a matter of principle, especially, and it's not. Uh, you can say glibly, it's not our war. We should keep you out. Do of you it. understand why Muslims but, care so but it, much? But it is a corsetor. Yes. Do you understand of why course. Afghanistan, yes. Iraq, the Rohingya, yeah. the Palestinians? The, 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 the whole of your identity is about the faith, but um, ra ra rather than yes. a geographic yes. thing. Of course, of course, I understand that. Do you find that extreme? No, I understand. Obviously, it's different, but I understand exactly where it comes from. Uh, and Christianity did have it once. Christianity had it once, in, in, indeed so. Uh, and post-Reformation in particular hasn't. Mm. Uh, and there are good and bad. You know, so there's plenty of hardcore white racists uh, who say, you know, we shouldn't have these uh, independent, mostly was one, you shouldn't have these independent states, it leads to war. Let's have a united Europe. The whole point of that, that was a united white Christian Europe. That was, mm. that was the thing. So there's this, I understand exactly where you people are coming from. Um, you couldn't do that with uh, Europe, with Christendom, because we're so far moved from the old Christendom, it's simply not there. Mm. It's wholly unrealistic. So you get a European Union, which is actually a socialist, atheist monstrosity, even worse than the nation states. Uh, so, but obviously you can have that. And as I say, if we can have a peace deal, but it has to be a just peace deal, it can't be enforced at the point of, at gunpoint, let alone with thermonuclear bombs or whatever, it has to be a just peace deal and it would suit your people in Islam and it would suit our people as well. Inshallah. But it's a, it's a long way. It's a long away. way. Yeah, no, no, no. Look, <laughs> look, I pray to God that there comes a time where, look, look, even these terms many will find problematic, but Christian Europe, Christian West, whatever you want to call it, and that if there is a reflective representational Islamic civilization, whether it be in the form of a caliphate or sultanate or a union of indep actual independent Muslim states, <laughs> right? That I hope that a, a, a peace treaty or an, or an agreement of that nature would be far more beneficial to mankind, considering we make up most of mankind, right? Whether that be by identity or association, <laughs> I hope that, that I, I believe that would be a better prospect than what we're having right now. To bring the podcast to a close, Let's talk about Israel, the Zionist lobby, mm -hmm. and the ongoing war on Gaza. Are you supporting the Palestinians, or are you criticizing the Zionists because there's an inherent dislike for Jews? I'm supporting the Palestinians, and I'm criticizing the Zionists, and I'm also pointing out that Zionism doesn't grow out of nothing. It's the political expression of a... Uh, a ruthlessly, genocidally uh, xenophobia and racism 
which exists within Judaism, particularly in the Talmud, in the Babylonian Talmud. And as I said before, there's, there's Jews who don't go along with this. There's leftist Jews, there's the Nisura Carter types and so on, uh, and there's secular people. Yes, I oppose so, this unequivocally. So, so, so that they oppose it too. Why is it a European issue and not an Islamic issue? Let me, let me explain to you why. Why is it the case that, I mean, I, I think one of the reasons is the way Islam very quickly nipped in the bud the issue of usury. That's, 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 that's what I believe. Could right? be. yep. Because um, it's very well known and documented that the Jews of Medina, the first Islamic society, they used to practice usury. Um, and this was something that was banned in the Islamic mm -hmm. mark markets throughout Islamic civilization for over a millennia. The issue, what you've just described, it seems to be a European issue with Jews, not an Islamic issue with Jews. Because the Islamic issue with Jews is that they lived, they thrived, they flourished. Um, they didn't necessarily embed themselves within the the, the machinations mm -hmm. of of Islamic civilization, but in yep. Europe that was not the case. Yeah. So why so right? Well, I don't know why it is, but the Mus Berber armies, Muslim armies, didn't force the gates to Toledo. They were opened as liberties. No, they were opened by Jews as a negotiation, and then the Jews became you know the the money lenders and so on for for for, the, for within that system. Uh, Constantinople gate, there was a, a subversive fifth column within it, which helped the Muslims take Constantinople That's against crazy. the Jews. No, honestly. Come on, and, and, and you see the, the gates of modern Western civilization Nick, have been crazy. opened by, on account of, the same fundamentalist hatred. All religions have religious crazies. The, the, Christians, are saying, oh, look, the, the Christians have got the Christian Zionist crazies. The Muslims have got the... The crazy crazies who aren't representative. Quickly, and, let me and ask the you. Also do, do, you believe, do you believe that? Hatred do you believe? Do you believe? Are you telling me that? I just need to make this very clear because the Constantinople, fourteen fifty-three, mm -hmm. uh, many believe that to be a, a prophecy. That the mm -hmm. Prophet Muhammad said that Constantinople will fall, and its army will be great, and its leader will be great. Sultan Muhammad Fatih, mm -hmm. may Allah have mercy on him. Are you saying, if I've understood you correctly, that in those key historical moments where the Muslims entered European lands, whether it be Andalus, Spain, yeah, yeah. Uh, Constantinople, you're saying there was Jewish involvement yeah, yeah. in that? Yes, there, there always has been. I'm telling you now, most people think that's bonkers. Most people, and, and now the, the bulk of it was the fact that these Muslim armies were superior to the Christian opponents, Yes, for one reason or another. But it's not helped by the fact that there's people opening the gates, just as if you look at uh, the in Andalus, they saw us as liberators. In Andalus, they were like, being, we were being oppressed by the Catholics, we were being oppressed by the Christians. The Muslims would give us our rights. What, the Jews? Yeah. Yes, undoubtedly. I do, I, I do understand to a, to, a, to a degree where the Jews are coming from in this, but I'm not a Jew. If I was a Jew, then I don't know whether I'd be an Israel Shamir, Ron Unz type of Jew, an Atura Carter, or whether I'd be a crazy Zionist. I don't actually know. I hope I'd take the right side, but. Yeah, I'm a tribalist, yeah. so, so, so I don't know. All I'm saying is that, as you say, they, they were oppressed or they felt oppressed by the Christians, so they welcomed the, the Muslims. They, they opened the Muslims in as liberators, which might be fine for them, but, it wasn't but, good it's, for the but it's not good for the Christians, it's not good for the people who I identify with. Yeah. Now, what I will say here, to be, again, to try to be fair and to put this into context, sure. that in Christian Europe, the Jews were kicked out of everywhere, primarily because the kings, because the elite of the time, used them as money lenders because if it comes too hot, you simply blame the Jews and you have the peasants go and kill them. That, that is and the case. Go, I recognise that there's an issue and I wonder if there's an extent, and again, you've got all the Muslims at the present, completely focused on the Zionist issue. And when I look, we were talking earlier on about who really runs you know, the, the money power of the United States. So 
there's an element of mis, mis, disproportionate involvement of Jews, but there's plenty of, for want of a better word, wasps, white Anglo-Saxon, originally Protestants, Protestants yeah. right? And whether they're now Satanists or Protestants doesn't really matter. There's plenty of them. Uh, and the World Economic Forum thing. So, uh, yeah, I, Klaus Schwab, I think he's a German. Mm. Uh, the uh, horrible uh, little uh, creature they have as their main spokesman the transhumanist here, yeah, we're going to remake mm. humanity. In. We're going to make man. We're going to make the new Superman completely against God mm. and so on. Uh, so he's uh, he's Jewish, but I think most of them aren't. This is super capitalism. I get transcends all religious boundaries yes. other than possibly a dark Satanism. Mm. And I think perhaps it's very convenient for them that if people are going to kick up against anything, they focus on the Jews, whether it's on the counter-Talmudism or on a counter-Zionist thing. Because I think in the end, if, you, if you've got uh, the great Satan is in the United States, the great Satan isn't even Netanyahu and his people. That's the little Satan. And I'm not absolutely sure of that, but I think it may be the case. So just as the medieval kings would set the Jews up to collect the money and be patsies, I think we might have an element of that going on now from just the money power, which knows no faith, so no boundaries, so no identity. So, so this goes back to a question I asked earlier on in the podcast. Do you think that relationship will ever sever or be affected? Because if you're now saying or suggesting that, and again, correct me if I've misunderstood, that there is this relationship that Christian Europe and the West has had when it comes to wars, financing wars, lending money, and so on, when it all goes pear-shaped or sideways, you, you can just conveniently blame the Jews, exile them until the next <laughs> war, right? If you're saying that the equivalent of that today is the Zionist lobby and the Zionist financiers, Will that relationship ever sever or become impact? Because what I'm seeing is the Christian Protestant right, who from an identity point of view have always been pro-Israel. I spoke to Jim mm -hmm. about this. The Protestant, yes. they're pro-Israel. Yes, of course. Yep. They're Zionists. Yeah. But this timeline, I'm seeing a bit more of a dissent. Yeah. I'm seeing more um, a shift in, in how we're seeing... Uh, how this alliance is so synonymous, they're seeing that it's actually detrimental to yeah. the interests and the autonomy of our respective countries. Why has that shift happened? I think it, I, I sense it as well. I get it as well. It definitely is going on. You're a manifestation of that? Yeah, perhaps. Yes, yeah, perhaps so. Jay Defanson so, is a manifestation yes, yeah. of that. So perhaps it, so, so, so it is going on. Uh, and why? Partly because Christian Zionism is not, that's not the original position of you know, Christendom. Not at all. You know, we're imperialists and all the rest of it. Um, uh, that's one thing. But the Christian Zionist thing is a late 19th century heresy, which was uh, pushed through in the United States by some clever sales selling of the Schofield Bible, which is a completely heretical piece of nonsense. Which in short says get the Gentiles have to get the Holy is, Land ready for the coming the, of... Which is that the Gentiles have to get ready that unless you, you must... Israel is... Israel... It's not Israel as the Church of Christ, mm. because the Jews broke the covenant. That's it. It's finished. Christ himself said that's finished. Uh, but coming back to the whole Christian Zionist thing, it's a very recent thing within. It's not it's very rare in Britain other than in Northern Ireland. It's very, very recent, even in America. It's not organic. It's not natural. And I think that so many Americans have had their eyes woken, uh, eyes opened by the way in which the, the Democrats, the left and so on, uh, operated against, operate against the United States by the way in which the whole liberal elite is so that they are a very Christian and conservative people. So 
the LGBTQ thing offends and worries them just as much as it does you and me. I have and, to ask you something. And, 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 and you're yeah, your point. Point. So uh, they, uh, because they're looking now, and most of all, recently, it may not bother your people, perhaps, but the whole COVID thing and how this fake pandemic, as we see it, was imposed for reasons of money and power. Uh, and so many people... You don't think COVID was real? Oh, of course COVID was real. It was a rebranding of the flu. Yes, it killed, it killed elderly people. And in particular, it killed hideously obese Brits and Americans. Yeah, who were on the point of death. Do you think anyway. the numbers are fake? No, I think, it's, I think it's entirely true. It didn't kill any more than flu. Flu in a bad year kills tens of thousands of people in Britain. Did you get vaccinated? Uh, I did, under protest with the Oxford, because it's the least harmful, mm. because I'm past uh, reproductive age, I don't really give a damn, and I wanted to be able to travel. Mm. But I, I told everyone who would listen, don't get vaccinated, it's not necessary, uh, and it's probably poisonous. Mm. And I think the, uh, the, the, the Pfizer one almost certainly was, or at least it's rushed out, with, it hasn't been tested, it's dangerous. But it's not that, I'm not talking about the disease and that response. I'm talking about uh, the way in which lockdown was imposed. And it's a test lockdown for an elite which wants to lock down. They want to keep the whole third world at third world level, the old third world. And they want to depress our living standards to the same. Whilst they party because, in Downing while Street. While they party and they're absolutely fine. And they're determined, they're quite open. The World Economic Forum types, they're quite open about this. They intend to destroy our productive and our food productive and our energy capacity to the point where we're pushed down so far into material poverty that we're no longer this threat because of this mythical climate god thing that they've got. Mm. But regardless of how people think about that, I think that there's so many on the American right got that. Actually, even if it was wrong, they believe it. That's what counts in this case. And they understood the media were lying to them on a massive scale. So they're, they're now prepared to question. In fact, their default position is now they question everything. Before the COVID thing, the default position of the masses in Britain and in the United States was believe everything. Now the default position is disbelieve and go and do a bit of research. And despite extensive censorship on the Internet, you know, I'm banned from Facebook for life by Zuckerberg himself. Uh, you put this on YouTube and there's a risk. I'm in fact banned from YouTube, uh, and I'm not, I'm not the only one. So, but despite that sort of censorship, people in middle America have now got it enough that they've gone to do their own research, and you don't have to do very much research at all to find out that CNN, Sky, and all the rest of you, rest of them, they're lying about what happened on October the 7th. They're lying about the origins of this conflict. They're lying about the good Jews versus the evil Muslims. Mm -hmm. They're lying, so therefore they see. So I think that's it, and the, the leaders... Uh, perhaps as far as any leaders are speaking out about this now it's partly because they're pushed from the people below they're pushed by the, the mass of people who in the end provide their money do you believe the Palestinians uh, have been wronged? absolutely do you believe that's occupied land? of course it's, yes they, they, they were wronged from the Balfour Declaration onwards so they were wronged specifically by the British elite. So can you now understand the, the, the frustration and the antagonism and the distrust that Muslims have towards the British establishment when they show unequivocal support yes, for its genocidal war. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm terrified by where it's potentially going to lead us. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely understand it. My last question to you, and this is more as a Muslim to a Christian. You mentioned the LGBT issue. Mm -hmm. I think you've been quite unequivocal and quite clear with regards to your position on Zionism. Um, its historical roots, in according to yourself, in terms of the relationship between Christian Europe and, and Jews and, and that relationship there. 
I want to ask you something, Nick, and I want this to be the concluding aspect mm-hmm. of, our, of of our podcast because, you know, Allah tells us in the Quran and verbatim verse will be there on the screen. You know, come, and let's find a common word between us that we worship none other than God, and worship Him alone. So there's an actual instruction there to the Muslims to engage with Christians, not as permanent allies. Mm-hmm. But those who in values and morals at least are closer to us than theologically the Jews. You know when you talk about LGBT, when you talk when we spoke about the grooming issue, about why young white girls were out and about mm-hmm. at certain times of the day, where were their fathers, where were their parents? When we spoke earlier on about soaring divorce rates, when we spoke about the number of single single parents in the UK, Britain leading Europe in most cases in, yeah. in this regard. When we speak about all of this. And I'll ask you as, as a Muslim to a Christian, do you not believe that the decline of the institution of marriage in the UK and broadly speaking in the Western Hemisphere, the decline of having children within the family institution, um, just general social and moral decadence in terms of a hedonistic life, you know, no, no awareness or regard for God or anything sacred, you know, a lot of this stuff could be prevented if Christians remained true to their principles and remain true to the principles and the values of the Bible. And I'm saying this as a Muslim who mm. believes that the Bible is a tampered um, uh, um, revelation, mm. that we believe that when it was revealed, it was the truth and the word of God. And there could be remnants of it, which is still the truth, but we can never conclusively say. What's your thoughts on the decline of Christianity in the West and how that has contributed towards what you're seeing do you, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I could just answer that with yes. No, I, so I, I agree with everything you said. But to elaborate on that, <clears throat> I think all religions go through sort of ups and downs phases in terms of how committed people are and how much enthusiasm enthusiasm. Whether Christianity is more so than Islam, I don't know. But certainly, uh, I'm a keen genealogist, family history, and so on. If you go back to the 18th century, one third of all the, of all the marriages in rural England, uh, the woman's already pregnant. She has the child within nine months of being married. Uh, all the churches that you look around today uh, are the ones that are now falling into ruin, becoming mosques because they're empty as no one else goes. Are uh, we to blame for that? No, no should, should, not. Are Muslims no, to blame no, for why churches are de- empty? Definitely not. No, they're empty because people have lost God uh, or demographic. They simply aren't there anymore. It's a, it's, a, it's a combination. But those churches were also empty and derelict in the 1840s and 1850s, because at that point also, the British in general, the English in particular, had lost their faith in a huge way. The Enlightenment could be blamed for that. So, and, and nothing is, perhaps, perhaps it's the Enlightenment, but it, it, it comes and goes in waves. And typically, uh, European countries, and I think it's most places, most religions probably, people go back, or they, they get the faith, when they're subjected to some particular, particular external pressures. And you know, things are going wrong and so on, uh, whether it's violence or poverty or the change of the Industrial Revolution and whole communities, bang, almost overnight, you go back and they become religious and they become better places for that, regardless generally of the religion, they become better anyway. What is the golden um, era of European civilization? Sorry? do you think? What, what do you regard as the golden era of European civilization? When was the last golden era? Do you believe we're living in the golden era now? No, absolutely not. When, was, when no. was the last golden era? I think for Christian a, Europe. From a... A from, mati- from, a ter- from a, from a, from a, a Christian, Christian yeah. then you've actually got to go back to 
late Victorian times, just before the First World War. Okay. When for all the hypocrisies and the injustices and so on, uh, it was yeah, a better country. My mother, if so, is past that. My mother, she was evacuated as a child uh, during the Blitz. Victorian so women look like our so, women. Yeah, in, in, indeed so. But my, my mother said that you know, when she was young, even, that, when, it, even when, when I was young, hmm. kids were free in, in Barnet, was free at the age of below eight Boys and girls, we could wander anywhere we wanted, and our, and our parents all told us the same thing: don't talk to tramps. Who were poor old chaps, actually, head screwed from the from the Second World War and the Korean War mm. mainly. Uh, but that, other than that, we were completely free. So that was almost a golden era because it was in the 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 afterglow of this confident and decent Christian-based society. So 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 that that's that's now gone. But coming back to what I was saying about the churches in Victorian times, they were derelict because that was one of our non-religious phases and under the pressure that I think is coming with a combination of issues a convergence of catastrophes is heading the west way so you've got the whole demographic shambles which isn't about your numbers anything like as much as it's about our numbers you know up down uh, and the whole the LGBT and the, the the kids with no fathers all this is heading for a, a, a catastrophic civilizational disaster on top of all of which we've got an elite which is now hell-bent on destroying the fundamental material basis of our civilization, particularly an effective energy system. So there's going to be all sorts of trouble. The result of that trouble, I believe, is you'll wake up one morning and find, wow, these Brits have, have found God. Some of them will find Islam, actually. They're already finding Islam. Some of, some of them are. But there'll come a, a flip point, and most of them will find, actually, I believe, the faith of their fathers. And it won't be automatically hostile to you people. It'll be far better. Can actually. I ask something? And I, I, think, I, think, I think that is... Does it surprise you that, that Islam is the and, fastest and growing needed. religion in Britain? Does that surprise you? That Islam is the fastest growing religion in, Br no, in Britain? No, uh, I think that certainly... Well, that the highest number of converts in Europe no, happen to be white women. It doesn't, it doesn't surprise me at all. Why? It's, uh, are we, we to blame for that? We, no. We, are we to blame? Women, women innately want something that's strong and, and secure. settled and secure, secure and the man is the boss. Yes. That is what even the feminists, that's what they really want deep down. So Islam offers hypergamy. Islam offers this. Yes. Yeah, sure. Uh, but Christianity should offer this. Yeah, Christianity should. So there's a smallish town near where I live called Newtown, where it's almost exclusively white, Welsh, uh, and uh, the the kids used to be all just sort of you know couldn't give a damn, just near youngsters, just doing things they do, which is drink and drugs and all and all the rest of it, uh, and it's now split three ways. There's a trash population who are doing smack and all the rest of it, cannabis just. Absolutely wrecked. They're going to leave no kids, effectively. Few single mums, and they're going to disappear. There's about one third who are still doing what normal Western teenagers do in the the more decent way. Still, you know, godless and hedonistic, but not out of your head. You know, crazy, self-destructive. And fully one third of them go to a big evangelical Christian church, and no one in, uh, although there's a few Muslims there, no one in, in Newtown's been converted to that. Lots of kids, they go out on a Saturday night, the slightly older ones, with uh, sandals. And there's young girls tottering around drunk on high heels and so on. They give them sandals and they help them home or they pay for a proper taxi to get them home. That's really so good of them. So this is also happening in our community as well as yours. And I think that the most likely thing, and certainly I want, as a, a tribalist and a Christian, I want them to come, you know, to come back to Christianity. And I think they probably will. And it would be a far, far better place uh, and where we are at present is a, a civilizational disaster in its later stages. Uh, it's horrible to see. Uh, it's dangerous to all concerned. But it, w it, it will turn around. Mm -hmm. I just, again, I'd, I, I hope 
they can turn around purely because they see they look into this abyss, the godless abyss, and don't like what they see, and they come out of it themselves under the pressures of external uh, financial, economic pressures, all the rest of it. I hope they come to it that way rather than they're driven back to God through violence. And there's one more thing on this. Having in, in the BNP days, I was culturally a Christian, but really not much more than that. There was no votes in pretending to be You're Christian. a reformed Christian. Now. So I'm, I'm now a Christian, but so I was, I'm more a Christian now, much more than I was then. Then it was more or less cultural as opposed to a faith and believing that this is really a good thing innately in itself. But obviously prophecies are very important to, to Muslims and so on. But there's also uh, in the Old Testament, constantly when his people, which was the Jews, now it's us, have gone astray, they're no longer obedient. God chastises them, a ch the chastising rod, and the chastising rod constantly is the sons of Ishmael, the Arabs, by extension, the Muslims. So it's entirely possible. So I'm not going to hate you or Islam, especially more so, more so now, than perhaps it's part of God's plan to drive this heathen, godless, effed up, white ex-Christian population back to faith, back to our faith. You may just be the chastening rod. And if so, you're part of prophecy, part of God's plan, and fair play to you. Nick, um, I thoroughly enjoyed having you on. I've enjoyed being here, thank you. Um, depending on where this podcast goes out, uh, whether it passes the regulatory and legal checks, um, I hope it does go out. I think there's a lot for people to benefit, Muslims, Christians, non-believers, mm -hmm. Um, certainly those who are from the right and a certain spectrum of the right. Um, I hope that this conversation is something for you to take away with you and for you to reflect on your way back to Shropshire that, you know, I had a perception of Islam and Muslims once and the very experience from the moment I saw you at the lobby to the moment you've been up here, you've met loads of yeah. people. You met lots of Muslims. You met a Jamaican Muslim who's filming right now, Brother Jamal. You've met Brother Obeidah from Iraq. You met Rosh Muhammad Saleh, my editor. You've met many. In fact, in fact, I don't think you've actually seen a non-Muslim in this building today, have you? You know, it's been, it's so, well, I'm the only white man yeah, in the building. The only white man. So, and and and, and <laughs> oh yeah, yes, that's true. Robert. Yes, that's true. And you've been treated with respect, well, total which, respect, yeah? and friendship, yeah? kindness. Uh, yeah. Yes, and but it's also important to know that there is a grievances, and this podcast won't sort that. Yep. And I wouldn't blame if I don't change the single opinion of a single Muslim if they still hold on to those views about you from that. But I hope this podcast goes out in the platforms which you could benefit. Again, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Brothers and sisters and friends and foes, I hope you enjoyed today's engagement as much as I did in terms of perceptions, opinions, exchanges. If you enjoyed this episode, you enjoyed this season, do remember to subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. Of course, you can find this show on all the major audio platforms. And until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.